This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy August 25th to you. It is Kiss and Makeup Day, folks. Mm, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> this is the day that uh, you you, uh, you fix those past arguments, the ones you haven't dealt with. You know, sometimes arguments aren't so bad if you get to kiss and make up. Thank you again, Jeffrey. Today's the day for that. It's also National Banana Split Day. How can you go wrong there? Nothing better. In fact, let's order those right now. Uh, Terry, can you order some banana splits at 7 in the morning? Could you get on that, please? From where? I don't care. The creamery? Oh, yeah. We could actually, I don't know if we could do do it by the end of the show, but they probably make them over there. I bet they do. And they it'd be good publicity. Hmm. It's going to be a good day, it's folks. It's the local facility that helps to uh, support the freshman 15. The gain of 15 pounds by every freshman on BYU campus. That's right. The BYU Creamery. It really is. It's. Uh, I did find that interesting that one of the uh, you know, built-in sort of institutions on campus is an ice creamery. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like it's the tradition. Something it. so BYU. What else do you need? I mean, what else? <laughs> what are you going to do? Some colleges, you know, party hard. Yeah. They have lots of fraternities. We have ice cream. Yeah. But a lot of different kinds. Super good. Happy National Banana Split Day to you all. I like that. Mm. My favorite banana song. Is it the Archies? It's not. It's a group from the 60s, 70s called the Banana Splits. The Banana Splits. Tell me did that's they, not did, a happy song. Did they run out of lyrics there? They just turned yeah. into la, 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the lyrics are the hardest part. I know. But once you've got a really good beat, then you just la, la, la it all the way through. Hey, we got a great show for you today. Uh, what about – you hear about all these hacking stories. Democratic uh, National uh, Committee hacked. Yep. The government hacked. The White House hacked. We heard so, uh, some New York Times reporters uh, from their Moscow office allegedly hacked. Yep. Really? That was yesterday. Uh, the actress Leslie... Leslie Jones. Jones from Saturday Night Live hacked. Mm-hmm. Everybody's being hacked. Is it possible that election machines could be hacked? So the voting machines. The voting machines are... They're plugged in eventually to upload their data and to send their data in. Could they not be hacked? Hmm. And if the Russians really wanted to get at us which apparently everyone says they're trying to do. As we are allegedly. trying to get after them, yes. It's a two-way street there. It's a two-way street. They just seem to be really succeeding. Well, our government just doesn't report on their activities. Well, I know, but... They, and Russia doesn't report because, right. well, it's kind of embarrassing. Well, and their politicians in Russia probably aren't constantly invoking the Americans as didn't, hackers. Right. Didn't Trump hire them? Didn't he uh, try to enlist their help? Oh, yeah. Well... He didn't. He didn't enlist their help. He was more of giving them an open invitation. 
Yeah. Come on, Russia. And it was probably just a mm. joke. If it was you sarcasm. Have, it, was, it was one of those – it was a Trump moment. Yeah. A Trumpy – Trumpy. We've got to give him an award. A Trumpy award. So today we're going to be talking about can your voting machines get hacked and be speaking with Richard Forno, who uh, – Forno, who really has done extensive research on the subject. It's kind of a scary idea. I mean you think a hanging chad is a bad thing. <laughs> What happens when the whole thing gets overrun by some hacker? And then do you trust the results? What do you do if you don't trust the results? Anyway, we will get to all of that, uh, plus some crazy uh, stories as well. And a little uh, Trump date. He's he's coming off a little – he's trying to soften his message on immigration, and he started it by calling Hillary Clinton a bigot. So we will start there. But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin? Good morning, Matt. During the second part of his two-hour interview on Fox News, Donald Trump again seemed to signal that he was softening his immigration stance. He says, no no citizenship. This was about a question given about his previous plan to deport all undocumented immigrants. He said, let me go a step further. They'll pay back taxes. They have to pay back taxes. And there's no amnesty as such, but we work with them. So this mirrors the policy of Jeb Bush, who Trump criticized in the Republican primary for being soft. Florida Governor Rick Scott said on Wednesday the federal government had so far not delivered all the Zika antibody tests and laboratory support he had requested as the state battles the spread of the virus. Um, Yesterday, the Florida Department of Health reported a second non-travel-related case of Zika in Palm Beach County, bringing the state's total to 43 cases. Thunderstorms and tornadoes plowed through central Indiana yesterday, demolishing numerous homes and businesses 60 miles north of Indianapolis and cutting power to thousands of Indianapolis area residents, but no serious injuries were immediately reported. An unspecified number of minor injuries reported in the sur- were reported in the surrounding county. And lastly, Matt, Cook County, Illinois, which includes the city of Chicago, has decided that concerts featuring rap, along with country, rock, and electronic music, do not count as music or culture. Huh? Cook County changed a tax rule involving live musical or other live cultural performances and now says such musical performances do not count, a rule change that allows the county to demand $200,000 in back taxes from one venue alone. What? So there you have it. Those are your updates this morning. Cook, Rap is no longer music. Cook uh, County's <laughs> in a bit of a uh, budgetary issue. Yeah. So they're trying to find creative ways to... Uh, Generate some funds. Wow. Uh, there was a report I read yesterday in Kansas. There's, the police there are stopping a lot of Colorado license plates, just hoping to catch someone with some marijuana so they can get some sort of seizure situation <laughs> so they can generate some funds. That way they're in a budget issue also. Well, that's not the way to do it. That's what they're doing. I wouldn't want a seizure. I had a seizure. Because <laughs> the seizure is the best thing. They come in, they go, wow, there was a crime committed. You have marijuana. Yeah. And there's 50 bucks. That's ours now. Plus and the they weed. can just do this. Give us the weed, too. Holy cow. So, yeah. <sighs> just well, like a lot br- of people have already been debating if rap is real music. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's never been a government entity. That's yeah. crazy. No, it's a tax issue. Now they can raise money on it. <laughs> Maybe you should do a rap, and no. then we could decide uh, if it's music or not. Nope. Well, already I'm, know. You know what? Let's just say this. this. This is real music that Jeff has found for us. It's powerful Nope. Would this pass the Cook County music? Probably. It's Sound- a kind of a rap. It's all, this was pre-rap. Yeah. The banana. 
Is that just a comment on the lack of singing ability of the group, or are they just sort of no, talking? That's the, no, that's they're just they're just that's the that's the melody. That's oh. the that's the big. Um, they're trying to they're they're trying to like create this incredible uh, moment nope. where they drop. They do the drop. I don't believe the drop existed then. <laughs> they kind of look like the Teletubbies of that time, yeah. or like the Country Bear Jamboree. Nineteen sixty nine, the year I was born. Tons of tons of good stuff. Tons of good stuff with the banana splits. Hey, we got to get to all of the. I mean, the political world is on fuego right now, and it's it's so hard to know where to begin. Yesterday, we talked a lot about Hillary Clinton's emails and um, how you know they're really they're they're creating some major problems for people. Rudy Giuliani happens to uh, you won't believe this has an opinion about Hillary Clinton's. Emails. Do you think that Hillary Clinton could produce a crowd with this kind of enthusiasm? <laughs> I, I can think of only one really enthusiastic crowd that would gather for Hillary Clinton. A grand jury. <laughs> <laughs> I am more than willing to predict when the history of our day is written, the scandal you are watching unfold... It's going to be bigger than Watergate. He was really proud of that zinger. Oh, you like that? Yeah. He's like, <laughs> yeah. So I think she's talk, he's talking about the foundation issues. The emails. Pay for play yeah. kind of stuff. The emails. But it bigger, it's going to be bigger than Watergate. He first said it'd be bitter, bigger than the teapot dome scandal of the 1920s. Wow. And I was like, wow, that was a reference no one in the room probably understood. <laughs> so then he said Watergate. And everyone's like, oh, there yeah, I've heard go. of that. Yeah. Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> teapot dome it's like 18 something what are you doing how crazy is that and it doesn't end there um clinton then defends the foundation the foundation is a charity neither my husband nor i have ever drawn a salary from it you know more about the foundation than you know about anything concerning donald trump's wealth his business his tax returns i think it's quite remarkable his refusal to release his tax returns is even well, more concerning, let me given ask. the recent news that his businesses are hundreds of millions of dollars in debt to big banks, including the state-owned Bank of China and business groups with ties to the Kremlin. Seems like she's making a really good point that he should be president. His businesses are millions of dollars in debt, like our government. Yeah. Owes a lot of money to different banks, like China, in China, Bank of China, just like, like our government. Our government. <laughs> What's your point, Hillary? <laughs> but they don't take any money out of the foundation. That's what she says. It, unless Bill gets a speech that he'll go do. But does that go to the foundation, or does that go to him? Well, it's the same people that are paying to the foundation are then hiring Bill to come speak. Is that separate? Well, sure. That's Are they making you... a donation and then they give him money for him? There's, yeah. There could be two different payments there. Right. To a Clinton. Just like his wife is. Just like there were some hostages secretary. released and then piles of money showed up at an airport. Those are two separate and, things. And, well, they were leveraged, well, but still. Absolutely. And by the way, <laughs> um, after the $400 million, yeah. the, like I, I think the next day or two days later, $1.3 billion transferred. Right. One million dollars. It was the rest of their money. Total of 1.7 billion. Now, the cool thing about the foundation is a lot of people are contributing to it, 
including Donald Trump, yes. has con- contributed to the Clinton <laughs> Foundation. Here's Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's uh, campaign manager, talking about those donations. Donald Trump himself gave $100,000 at least to the Clinton Foundation. Was he giving that money pay to play? Now, the Clinton Foundation does a lot of good work, and I, I also want to say that for the record they do. But the question is, why these meetings with the State Department? Shouldn't the State right, Department... Right, but was your, was your candidate donating that money so that he could have access to to Hillary Clinton wherever uh, he no, wanted. No, because it seemed like he had access to her anytime he wanted. I mean, she went to his wedding. They went to his wedding. It seemed like he... As well, he, he gave says, money, I mean... As he says. Sure, because they do good work, and let's hope that that money went to good use. So he wasn't paying to play? No, he was not paying to play. Anderson Cooper went on to say, well, he did say he went to Hillary Clinton, or Hillary Clinton went to his wedding, and and Trump had spoken before about how that's kind of just part of doing business, is you, you donate money to different groups and different different people, and that's how you... Uh, create relationships, and that's how you do business, right? And so, is that pay to play? No, that's just pay to. That's just play to play. <laughs> yeah, so play. there's everything's getting kind of fuzzy here. But luckily, uh, Utah Congressman uh, Representative Jason Chaffetz, who is on what committee? The it's an uh, oversight committee. the oversight committee. He's he's got an answer to all of this <laughs> that would make it so everybody could could. You know, feel better about what's going on with all of these scandals. If you're going to run and try to become the president of the United States, you're going to have to open up your kimono and show everything. Your tax returns, your medical records. Ah. You're just going to have to do that. It's too important. So both candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, should show both their medical records and their tax returns. Absolutely. Mm. Open up your kimono? You know what? I opt for keep the kimonos closed. (laughs) And why is anybody wearing a kimono? Yeah, that seemed Man! So uh, (laughs) we appreciate the idea there, Representative Chaffetz. Uh, Another thing, you know, similar to that is Ben Carson isn't out of this. Mm. Ben Carson has his own view of what should, you know, what senior candidates, elderly candidates like Trump and Clinton should be uh, releasing. Somebody who is running for president of the United States, particularly if they're elderly, and that would include both major candidates, uh, should disclose their medical history. And I'm not talking about from a year ago or two years ago. I'm talking about currently. And I think... uh, yeah, that, but the, but that the, again, it's common from, sense. It makes sense because as people get older, things begin to happen to them. But the implication from Rudy Giuliani, what do you think about that? Sewing a hmm. So, yeah. You're so, old. We need to see what's going on. And, and he, he actually, and I'm sure he's using just a medical term, they're elderly. Right. <laughs> Has anybody told Donald Trump he's elderly? No, but he keeps trying to point out that uh, Hillary Clinton is elderly and frail. Well, and he's even doing more than that. He's got another nickname for Hillary. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. Oh, boy. <laughs> who sees people of color. There's such energy in that word. Yeah. For him. Only as votes, not as human beings worthy of a better future. She's going to do nothing for African Americans. She's going to do nothing for the Hispanics. She's only going to take care of herself. Her husband, her consultants, her donors. I came in like a yes! There you go. He did it. He said that, and the audience just sort of went, what? what? And then they cheered. Behind yeah. him, you could see like all these surprises. These looks like, guys. oh, what? he didn't. You know, and then, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, it was really a uh, an enthusiastic moment for him. And what do you say when... 
What do you say when you've just been called a bigot? He is uh, taking a hate movement mainstream. He's brought it into his campaign. Uh, he's bringing it to our communities and our countries. And, you know, someone questioned the citizenship of the first African-American president who has courted uh, white supremacists, who's been sued for housing discrimination against communities of color, who's attacked a judge for his Mexican heritage and promised a mass deportation force, uh, is someone who uh, is, you know, very uh, much peddling bigotry and prejudice and paranoia. Yep. Crazy days, folks. Holy cow. This is your presidential election. Two, according to Ben Carson, elderly people slowly trying to beat each other down. Hmm. Well, up next, we're going to continue the discussion about elections. What about the machines, the voting machines? You know, it's one thing about a hanging chat. If you remember the Bush-Gore election, that was crazy. But what happens if somebody actually hacks into our election machines, our voting machines? Could the entire election be stolen, maybe by the Russians? Handed to Donald Trump or handed to Hillary Clinton? We'll find out from somebody in the know. Stick with us. We're talking uh, hacking technology and your elections. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we got a, an interesting subject to discuss today. Cybersecurity, huge, huge deal for all of us, I think. And you're seeing more and more of it with the hacking that's going on around the country. Uh, even in movies like Born Identity, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, James Bond, it's obvious that nations throughout the world are not very good at keeping their hands to themselves. It is common for nations throughout uh, the world also to intrude into the affairs of other nations. And many are saying that Russia is trying to slowly work its way into our own political process. Uh, We had a whole, you know, upsetting moment where Donald Trump suggested that Russia should go find all of Hillary Clinton's emails. But here's the thing. Is the American voting infrastructure secure? Is it trustworthy? Are there a possibility out there? Are there possibilities that the voting system could actually be hacked? And what should we be more concerned with? A domestic attack or an international attack? You know, somebody from Russia attacking our systems or somebody right here from the United States attacking the systems? Here to answer these questions is Dr. Richard Forno. Dr. Forno has a PhD in Internet Studies from Curtin University of, uh, and also – um, is the uh, professor at um, what's it uh, Baltimore College? Is that right, Where, Dr. Forno? Oh, sorry, Maryland, Baltimore County, University of Maryland, University Baltimore of County. Maryland, Baltimore That's County. where you. I knew you were in Baltimore. I'm like, come on, it's in Baltimore somewhere. Dr. Forno, talk to us about this. Is this a serious threat that our voting machines could be hacked? Well, I think to answer that question, I need to take a step back and say that cybersecurity issues generally have become much more prominent in recent years, and people are far more attuned to them now. So they, they make the news headlines on a weekly, if not daily basis. 
So we're all more aware of these issues when they come up. And as you know, cyber touches every aspect of our society, right. including voting. Yeah. Um, is it a concern that a foreign country may uh, want to uh, target our, our election systems? Yes. Having said that, our systems are not one giant computer that somebody can target from overseas. Um, every state has its own way of doing voting. Some use electronic machines. Some use traditional punch cards and paper ballots. So it's not like a giant computer system that hmm. can be hacked to change the outcome of an election. Right. Is it uh, – do you know what percentage of states use you know, punch card systems? What percentage of states use electronic devices? I don't know specific numbers. I believe there's probably about 20 percent roughly that use electronic devices of one way or other. Uh, they've been around for about 10 years. Hmm. The In the end, though, it seems like the data is going to be, you know, tallied and then transmitted electronically as well. Sure. I mean, if you have an electronic, let's take the electronic voting machines first. Uh, you cast your vote at the at the polling place, that data gets collected, sent electronically to the other side of the room <laughs> yeah. where it gets counted and then uploaded to the election office for the state in question. Along the way, there, there's a possibility that that data could be tampered with, you know, whether at the point of election where you, you know, punch yes and you meant to punch no <laughs> mm -hmm. or someplace anywhere along that path. With paper ballots, it's a little bit different because you can't hack a piece of paper necessarily, right. but as you're collecting that data and then uploading those numbers somewhere, there's a possibility that that data can be tampered with, sure. Is this, um, as you are uh, you know, an expert in cybersecurity, uh, what, what do you think is the biggest thing we should be worried about when it comes to information, you know, warfare, when it comes to cybersecurity and our election process? Well, my flippant answer would be everything, yeah. but we can't protect against everything. That's just – we'd never get on with our lives. So I would say in terms of the voting story, if you will, I think a uh, concern that is not, I think, given much attention these days is the voter registration ro rosters in the various states uh, where you go to sign up and register and state your preference and get your assignment for a polling place mm. precinct. Those systems, that's almost like an e-commerce site, if you think about it. Yeah. And uh, that, to me, is more interesting of a security concern because if you can tamper with the voter rolls and maybe create, you know, throw in a couple of thousand more people in a given precinct and make it appear as if you've got all these new names that can register and vote, that can certainly skew an election. Oh, absolutely. So I'm less concerned about the point of presence about the, the voting machine, although there are certainly security concerns, I'm also as equally concerned about the integrity of the data about who is eligible to vote. Wow. And, and, and even just making it so you can't vote. Certain people's names aren't on the registers like they thought they would be, and they are turned away at the voting booth. What a, what a fiasco exactly. that would create. Exactly. In, in, in the computer world, we call that a denial of service attack. You know, if you uh, show up at the polling place, you show your ID and you're said, well, I'm sorry, you've already voted today. Wow. And you kind of look at the person going, uh, no, I just got here. Well, we're in, a, we're in an era where the computer is given, you know, the benefit of the doubt. Well, the computer is right. I'm sorry, sir or ma'am, you can't vote. 
what does that do for the electoral process and democracy? Well, and we just saw the DNC hacked. So, and I, I'm not sure if the regist- the voter registration, you know, systems are better protected than the DNC, but I, I'm sure a hacker could get if they can get into the White House systems. I'm assuming they could get into the registration systems. Well, I mean, there are various levels of security. I mean, the DNC. I haven't looked into you know exactly how you know they're protected or whatnot, but they're they're an organization like a large company or a university or a small company. So um, maybe they had some gaps in their security that allowed the bad guys to get in. Hmm. Um, do I put the DNC on the same level as you know a, a state's voting um, registration system? Certainly not. Although the principles for securing these systems are pretty much the same. I mean, mm. information is information. They're both on networks. So yeah. some of the common best practices apply across the board. Have you seen situations then where cybersecurity did end up impacting or affecting an election? I am not aware of any specifically. Uh, it may have maybe in, something may have happened somewhere along the way, but I'm not aware of anything um, that's you know, newsworthy that comes to mind. I will say, though, that a lot there's been much ado made in the press about, well, the Russians or whomever are looking to influence the election. That's not a new concept. <laughs> As you said, That's a Cold War many, idea, right? Yeah. This is something that nations do. They want to know what their adversaries are doing, and it's a function of intelligence. So the fact that the Russians might be using computers to influence elections in some way that doesn't surprise me. Right. Is, are we more – should we worry about a domestic threat in cybersecurity or is that kind of far-fetched? Well, I think when you look at cybersecurity threats, um, on one level, all the threats are the same. Whether the, per, the, the attacker is coming from down the street or halfway around the world, um, the, the way they might target you is probably going to be very similar. Uh, in terms of, you know, an internet-based attack or some mm. kind of cyber, you know, a hacking event. So I, I think the protective measures you would take to guard against a foreign intrusion is going to be the same thing you're going to use to defend against some domestic-based intrusion. Yeah, and I guess it doesn't matter. Either one's an intrusion. Right? Exactly. What um, – when you look at it, just from your, your point of view uh, as assistant director – uh, at UMBC Center for Cybersecurity, what would you say? I mean, it, are are the U.S. are we pretty advanced in cybersecurity uh, attacks on other countries and defending ourselves? Where do we fit in the scheme of all of the other players? Are we leaders? Are we are we good at this, or are we behind the game like to Russia and China and others? Well, the U.S. certainly, you know, as a leader in this field, we've invented the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have the expertise. And cybersecurity, which if you go back, you know, 20 years was called computer security. And then how to attack other computers was called information warfare. Um, we've in many ways written the book on both offense and defense. That said, other countries, both friends and foes, have been evolving right alongside us. We're not the only game in town, and we are not the only experts on the planet in this stuff. Hmm. Wow. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new world. It's, it seems like a whole new game. What about uh, the laws that we're passing? It seems like we, we, could, 
we could have kind of a, maybe a naive government agency or a, a, an, a you know a, a representative pass legislation that doesn't necessarily make us more secure, but might demand you know things that that make our systems less secure. Is our government or our legislators protecting us well? Legislators are doing what legislators do best: addressing <laughs> a problem, but probably not actually fixing it. Yeah. Um, they can pay lip service to cybersecurity and related, related concerns, but when you look at the law and then what the law might actually put into practice, I think there's a big gap between what they like to do and what they actually are able to do. There aren't a lot of cybersecurity laws that have been passed in recent years here in, here in the United States that I think really have improved security for the better. I mean, yeah. one uh, pithy saying in the security space is you can't legislate stupid. <laughs> if an end user finds a USB thumb drive in the parking lot, goes into their office, which has great cybersecurity, plugs the plugs it into their computer, and infects their network. Right. Well, a law is not going to protect against that. Mm-mm. Yeah, you're not. And you know, you can sue, you can do whatever you want, but you've still been hacked. Uh, and I guess that's right. that's what we saw, right? Isn't I mean, it was it was simple little ways like that, opening up an email that maybe shouldn't have been opened in the White House that allowed cyber attackers in as well. It's just subtle, simple stuff. A majority, I, I don't have a specific number, but my, my sense, having been in the industry you know, 20 years before moving into academia, is that a majority of these cyber attacks were caused by human error or human complacency. You know, pl- opening that email, plugging in a thumb drive, or doing something mm. stupid, or being tricked by somebody versus somebody in that you know stereotypical basement with a hoodie <laughs> hacking in from some dark right. corner of the world. That happens, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, I don't think that's as prevalent or responsible for many of the attacks as just you know plain old human error. Totally. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Forno, who's the Director of Cybersecurity Graduate Program and the Assistant Director of uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County's Center for Cybersecurity. We'll come back, find out what we should be doing here in the United States to guard the system. Stick with us. More from the experts right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Richard Forno. He is assistant director at uh, UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County Center for Cybersecurity, and the director of the Cybersecurity Graduate Program. He is also uh, wrote a wonderful article in theconversation.com about how vulnerable we are to hacking in the United States election um, system, the cyber infrastructure. Dr. Forno, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Uh, when we when we talk about uh, all of this technology, I guess the question is: we, we want to make it as technologically advanced as we can. I'm assuming so we don't have hanging chads, but we also need to make it secure. Are those two ideas uh, can, can they go together, or are they? I mean, the more advanced we get, do we also still become fairly vulnerable? I think those are not mutually exclusive ideas. I mean, you can't have a system or a device that is, you know, 
secure or relatively secure and also easy to use and convenient. But if you look at how I think many of the cybersecurity problems have evolved over the past you know, decade or two, at least since the dot-com days, if not you know, the mid-90s, we, have, we rush out to embrace this, these new gadgets and gizmos and services, and they're awesome. They make our lives easier um, and fun. But we're so enamored by their benefits and conveniences, a lot of times we don't think about the risks and potential risks and consequences if thing, bad things happen. And by the time we start talking about these, these risks, those services and products are already so deeply part of our society and our workplace, it's hard to just rip them out and say, whoa, we can't do this. Right. Is, do you see a day that it would actually be possible for online voting and secure? I think that there will, be, there will come a time when that happens. Um, don't ask me for a, a date. I'm not sure. But certainly, uh, as there are many government services that are out there already um, that are done electronically, whether it's social security or you know, driver's license renewals and things like that. Electronic voting, I think, will come. It's just a matter of time. As long as we can provide a secure connection, protect the integrity of the data that's, you know, the votes that are cast and how that data moves through the system. And as I said earlier, that we can ensure the identity of the person at the other end of the connection mm. is actually casting the vote. Yeah. is um, And so I guess there's a lot of things we could do to secure the system, to guard the system. What are some of the recommendations you make and you would make if they called you and said, hey, Richard, what do you think we should do to update this system? Where would you start to to guard the system? Well, I think we're seeing some of these um, updates occurring now. Uh, One of the problems we have is many of these electronic voting systems that that are being used by, by the states, they were purchased 10 years ago. And they haven't necessarily been updated or fixed to re- reflect research that was done into their security and safety. So states that are running short on money anyway for all sorts of things um, are deciding rather than pay to upgrade and fix these voting machines, we're going to go back to paper ballots hmm. because we know how they work and we've got a paper trail uh, for how votes are cast. So in some states, we're seeing a, a, train, a change from electronic voting systems back to traditional paper-based huh. balloting. Um, I think that's driven more by cost, cost savings than you know, a security concern, but you, you can argue that security is part of that. Um, I also think that we ha- um, the states that are doing paper-based ballots, they set a good example because you've got a, what we call a paper trail. Yeah. You have a receipt. Um, and some voting machines in some states – their voting systems will issue you a paper receipt. Yeah, so we had that in Utah. Vote, you, you leave, you've got a paper that if right. there's ever a problem or you need to challenge the, your vote, you can prove this is how I voted. So those are basic common sense ideas that can help improve the security of the voting, the, the voting process. Is this a – who – I guess is it a state problem? Is it a national government problem? And and who who leads it? Like because these are these are this is a big infrastructure. And in the presidential race, we hear a lot of talk about you know re, revamping our infrastructure, but the election infrastructure is something that that you would think you'd want to unify to some degree, and, and so we don't have you know the the problems we had with the Bush Gore moment, right. 
Um, yeah, I think that picture of the gentleman with the magnifying glass looking yeah, at the hanging chair in history. <laughs> um, I, I think this, the elections are in this country are handled on a state by state basis, if not even local county by city basis. So there is no unified system. Hmm. Um, there, a case could be an argument could be made that yes, there should be a national framework for voting so that. We have one size fits all for everybody. But now you run into the politically charged questions about states' rights. Right. Well, one state wants to do things its way, and it reserves its right to do that under the Constitution. I'm not sure a politician or a, a bipartisan commission is going to um, float that idea and expect it to be um, accepted widely, unfortunately. No, I think you're right. And who's going to pay for it, right? So I could, you could almost see the federal government mandates all these changes – but doesn't send the money, and then exactly then you exactly. got a whole other. We're no better off, right? What should we do, just as an average voter heading to the polls? What can we do to make sure that the machines are, you know, tallying the votes as we voted, and that uh, that that we are safe and 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 being a smart voter? Well, there there isn't a lot you can do because the machine, the voting machines are the electronic ones are closed, so you can't go in and make sure that the you know the gears are working as they right. should be and the data. Um, I would certainly make you know see if there is an opportunity to get a paper receipt, uh, a paper trail in the electronic booth, and uh, if you don't see it, maybe ask your election officials there and, and if that's a, a possibility. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, certainly going into a traditional pull the lever and punch the card booth, you you see what you're punching. Beyond that, you have to have faith in the system and the election officials mm. uh, and the processes governing the collection and counting of these data as it moves through the system. There's not much you can do. A lot of this is based on trust, whether you're talking electronic voting or traditional paper-based balloting. Mm. Do you, uh, as a security expert um – where, where do you think we go with this? It sounds like – it just feels like recently more and more hacking stories coming out. Uh, do uh, The thing about hacking, it seems like to me, is we get more advanced in our protective measures, but then those eventually are broken down. So is this a nonstop process of creating new security methods that are then hacked? Is this ever going to end? Is there ever – I mean it used to be a vault was pretty secure. You just lock the vault. You know, and short of an armed robbery, no one's getting in that vault. What about what's the future of hacking and all of this? Well, internet security has always been sort of um, almost like an ocean wave. You know, there are peaks and valleys. Um, the problem is the good guys, the defenders, and the security community, we're always reacting to whatever the current threat is. And just by the time we figured out how to fix and address one specific technical problem, the bad guys have already got something else coming over the horizon. So the good guys are always playing catch-up in many, in many ways. That's been a, a perennial problem and feature of Internet security. Yeah. Um, so that problem's not going to go away. Um, it's, it's a tug of war. I do think, however, that the underlying cause of many of these problems comes down to what I call the wetware. The human being. <laughs> That's right. uh, you know the wet where That's great. Yes, I mean the brain is a very complicated computer. Right. System. It's the most complicated one in the world, but it's so easy to hack because yeah. you can trick people. You can lie to them. 
So if you're a user and you are tricked into doing something by a bad guy, you've created a vulner you've exploited a vulnerability and allowed something bad to happen. The bad guys also have brains. They see the world, they see the technology, they're researching ways to get in. So it is this tug of war, but ultimately it comes down to how people view systems to attack them or defend them hmm. or, and use them. And, and just give us some advice as a pro as well. If I if I'm on Google, if I uh, you know am using very like Facebook and other systems that are pretty popular, what can I do to to maximize my level of security on these systems? Well, a lot of the, the recommendations that we offered back in the '90s are still valid. Things like, uh, as you mentioned before, don't open email from strangers, don't autoplay you know media, mm. don't click on a, uh, on links you don't recognize. That, those sort of common sense things remain in full force, and I would say that's a starting point. Yeah. Um, be aware when you're going online you know, how these various services interconnect, Facebook and WhatsApp, and uh, how your information may be shared between these services so that if you're logged into Facebook, even though you're not actually on Facebook, Facebook still knows what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So be aware of how these things are all interconnected, and you know, think before you click. You know. You're not as private as you think you are. Mm-hmm. So common sense ultimately is going to prevail. And the usual bromides about good antivirus, uh, change your password, those sort of traditional tips, they're still as valid now as they were 10 years yeah. ago. And wear clean underwear in case that's you get in an accident. It's all yeah. the stuff grandma used to teach. Oh, that's crazy. Well, good stuff. I appreciate your insight, Richard. Really, it's a uh, we live in a, a different world than the good old days. And honestly, I think it could be the good future days. We just need to use that, our wetware, use our brain. It does. We just need to think, think before we act. Love it. Dr. Richard Forno, great work. Appreciate your insight and uh, continue your work there at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow, good stuff. You don't need to worry too much, folks, right? But be aware and pay attention. Talk to the talk to the people when you go vote. Push a little bit. Push on. Give them some feedback that, hey, maybe we need to secure this a little better. Why, why aren't we getting printed receipts? Why aren't we having some paper copy of what we're doing? We'll take a break. We'll come back. I'm going to let you in on a little inside. Terry taught me about Facebook. They're now starting to categorize all of us by our political interests. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live a healthy, happy life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting information about uh, cybersecurity from Dr. Forno, but we, he, he brought up a point that you, you need to know the systems that you're on and what they're doing and what, for example, Facebook has announced. They haven't announced. I guess they announced it. It made the news in the New York Times. I they think the New York Times it. found it. Yeah, because you brought it to my attention yesterday. You took me to my Facebook page, forward slash ads, forward slash preferences, and then all of a sudden I realized I, – it's like I, I felt like I had been violated and I went to Facebook Spy Central 
It and tells you what kind of phone you use. It tells you what's the operating system on the computer that you access Facebook the most on. It tells Facebook you your Wi-Fi speeds, basically. Yeah. yeah. It, and it even makes a uh, best guess estimate on your political leanings. Well, and it was rude because <laughs> it said, I'm ultra, ultra conservative. It said very. No, very conservative. Very conservative. Which I don't feel like I am. Right. I mean, I'm conservative. Don't get me wrong. But I'm I'm not very conservative. Oh, I probably am in relation to... Well, it's all based on what input you give Facebook. What have you clicked on? What have well, you read? And they, the, they, get, they take it from that and they make their assessment. This is what people need to know. When you're just browsing and perusing Facebook, they are, they're not just enjoying your ride. No, they're, they're, they're sucking in all this information about you because they're trying to then put they ads can in front of you. To you. But what's crazy about it is I may not be as very conservative as they think because I hardly go to my Facebook page. Right. I spend more time on my – more of my fan page, my professional page than I do my personal page. Mm-hmm. Because I, I kept wondering why are all these – why are all the things I'm seeing so, con, so ultra, ultra conservative? And now I think I know why. But if you go in and hit like on things yes, that you truly do right? like, it changes. Yeah. And it'll take a couple of days. Like I, I started doing this a while ago, and everything that was annoying about Facebook actually went away, and now I find it quite useful to find information because you, I'm telling it what I want to see, and also I want to see a variety of, of different sources. Everybody needs to do it, Terry. So tell them how to get there. They go to their Facebook page, and uh, – it, there's a URL basically yeah. for your Facebook page. Let's see here. Then you there do a, a backslash ads. 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 Then another backslash preferences. Preferences. Hit enter. And then you go, the next thing you'll, you'll see a bunch of, a grid of photos show up. And then there's one that says life and culture, mm-hmm. a little section there. So click life and culture. And then um, you'll have to probably go over to the More tab and click Interests yeah. after Life and Culture. And then it pops up and you see all these boxes. It's And it, it tells you, like I was telling you, your cell phone. It tells you what kind of operating systems on your computer. It, it, it actually was – it's unsettling because you realize, holy cow, they – they know stuff about you that you don't. Well, a lot of it you're entering when you sit down on your. They, they, yeah. they bring up a bio page. You're like, but, my birthday. Well, is. yeah, like your birthday. Then they're telling you, hey, you're a Gen Xer. Yeah. And but you're not entering your phone except they're you're using your phone to access this data. So they know they knew I had an iPhone six or whatever. If they, you have an Android, you need the Android version of Facebook, and that's what you access to get on yeah. Facebook on your phone. So they know what phone you have. <laughs> it's great stuff. We will post it on our Twitter page at Doctor Matt Show, so you can go find that link and uh, and make it happen. There you go. Does you use the? That's Kip. Kip's wedding song to La Fonda. La Fonda. What a name. On Napoleon Dynamite. We'll take a break, folks. Again, go to our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show, and you can get the New York Times article about how Facebook knows everything about you. Crazy! We'll be back, folks. Hour number two up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is... 
is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, folks, to hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. On the program, we do everything we can to get you the latest, the greatest information that you need to live healthier, happier lives. You know, it's a lot to ask for. We don't just bring you the news. We actually take you in-depth into the deep stories behind the news, sometimes the stories you never get from the rest of the uh, media providers, probably for a good reason, (laughs) Uh, because sometimes you don't need to know all of the stuff we're bringing you. Today, for example... We have a crazy story out of Australia about a crocodile. We'll get to that. And uh, also a little PSA on that as well because got to be careful. You never know what you'll find in your bathtub. We will be talking today with Joshua Stavros from the Utah Shakespearean Festival, which is a a really um, powerful, I think, experience in southern Utah. Shakespeare. Hmm. Shakespeare? It's it's a it's a pretty unique experience where you can go and, and experience in a Globe Theater Shakespeare in the round and try to and try to get a little culture in your life, but also maybe a little enlightenment. Today we'll be talking about that. Also, how to how to keep some of the arts alive with your family, with your kids, and, and create some traditions around that. We'll be getting to those topics as well, plus other headlines coming up. But first, we must get to the headlines and the news with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin? Thanks, Matt. According to Eric Trump, it would be foolish for his father, Donald, to release his income tax returns amid the presidential race. He says, you would have a bunch of people who know nothing about taxes trying to look through and trying to come up with assumptions on things they know nothing about. Despite repeated calls from both sides of the aisle for Trump to release his taxes, the GOP nominee has falsely maintained that he cannot release his taxes while they are subject to an Internal Revenue Service audit. Following extremely critical news coverage and condemnation from politicians, including Hillary Clinton, pharmaceutical maker Mylan has agreed to cut the patient cost of the EpiPen, the emergency shot that stops allergic reactions. The cost of the severe allergy treatment has increased by more than 400% in the past 10 years. Mylan said Thursday it would provide a savings card that covers $300 of the EpiPen 2-pack, which would reduce the out-of-pocket cost for the drug by 50%. U.S. Women's National Team goalkeeper Hope Solo has been suspended for six months from the national team for conduct that is counter to the organization's principles. After her team lost to the Swedish team at the Olympics, Solo called the team a bunch of cowards in an interview. And lastly, Matt, researchers announced the discovery of a new Earth-like planet orbiting a star not far from our sun. Really? The planet has not yet been named, but was found circling the Proxima Centauri, a cool, tiny red dwarf scientists have long suspected might be capable of having a planet in its orbit. The unnamed planet, known as Proxima b, is reported to orbit within Proxima Centauri's habitable zone and is only a short distance of 4.25 light years away from the Earth. Well, we got to get him on the show. So we should talk to him now that we've talked to Pluto. <laughs> so Thank you, Caitlin. That's there, a great idea. There's They call it the Goldilocks zone. Okay. Where it's not too hot, not too cold. You know, oh, that kind of thing, right? This just right. That's where we hang out. That's where the Earth is, right? Okay, yeah. We're right now, in the Goldilocks our, zone. I, I looked it up because I was reading more into this because, you know, aliens are cool. Uh-huh. Um, and it said the, the surface temperature... Of the planet. They gave that temperature. So, like, what's the surface temperature of the Earth? Yeah. The average temperature across the globe, about 57 degrees. 
Really? Granted, it's hotter in places, colder yeah, in places, yeah. temperature goes up and down. But like, if you want to see an average temperature for the entire planet, about 57 degrees. The average temperature on this planet, uh-huh. they think it's about negative 40. Whoa. So I don't know how that's habitable. But That, that one's too cold. Yeah. Proxima B? Yeah. That sounds like, ask your doctor if Proxima B is right for you. Holy cow. I tried Proxima B. <laughs> totally had a dry mouth syndrome. Yeah. And- Rashes, all kinds of stuff. Hives. So, um, I'm more interested if there's a planet that we could actually like walk out and hang out on. These planets, they find they're just huge ice balls out there floating around. It's like, yeah, cool, but you know, get back to me. But you want you know that if the planet is two and a half million miles away, is that what you said? It's four point two five light years. Okay. Um, Thank you. Nerd alert. No, the, that's what they said. Yeah, that's really good. Four light years away. So get up to the speed of light and travel for four years. That's so, how you get so there. So your problem is you're, you're probably not going to go walk on another planet. No, but they keep telling us about it. The, oh, there's a planet. Oh, it's probably dead. I'm like, oh, great. No! Or oh, there's a planet. Oh, it's probably like Jupiter. We can't go to Jupiter. Great. Not going to Jupiter. You know what? Try to get Proxima B on the show. We'll, we'll, we'll call its agent. We'll see what Ever happens. Ever since we interviewed Pluto, I... I feel like we've we've kind of forgotten a lot of the planets. There is a planet causing news because they feel like it may have a structure around it of some kind. What? Because they they can tell if a planet has moons because the planet will blink uh-huh. as the as the moon passes between a Earth, blinkage. right? Sure. So you see it go in and out. They're watching the blink pattern on this one planet, and it's varied. It's not like it's like a like a a planet or a moon passing by. So they're like. What is it? It could be an asteroid field, uh-huh. or it could be a space station. A message of some kind? There could oh. be... Morse code? Well, no, no, no. It's really? blinking because things are passing between us and them. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're having a code. But they're thinking it either is just debris out there, or it's some sort of structure they've created, and maybe we Ooh. have intelligent life. Maybe it's just a nightclub. It just could be a nightclub when they have a disco ball on space. Maybe they have their own Vegas. Yeah, so... Yeah, nerds. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with all them nerds? That's great. Ah, space. Space. <laughs> Place we're never going. Again, um, if you didn't, if you weren't with us yesterday, you got to go to byuradio.org, LinkedIn. No, what's it called? Uh, iTunes. iTunes. Tune in. Yep. Tune in. That sounds weird. And pick up uh, yesterday's interview of Pluto. Mo, his name is Maurice Pluto, the planet once dwarfed 10 years ago. Now it's a dwarf planet. Um, but we interviewed Mo Pluto, and I thought it was a really riveting interview until he got a little irritated at the end. Yeah. It, it was going really well until we lost him. We yeah. got an email from him, by the way. I think he wants you to take that interview down. Wow. Does he? He wants. He does not want to be affiliated in any way, shape, or with form the show? with the show. Well, well, seeing as yeah. how far away he is, it doesn't yeah. really matter. What's he going to do? How did he type? He doesn't even have fingers. I think he has an assistant. Yeah. Oh, does he? He can't pay her, but he just you know. That's probably one of his moons. He's got five moons. <laughs> he does. He plays five like moons. billiards, I believe he said. Hey, uh, as a service announcement as well for everybody out there, on the show, we, we talk about gators a lot. I mm. used to talk a lot about gator ball, my favorite sport that I think they ought to invent, which would really, I think, take baseball to the next level. Mm. Well, or, there is gator golf. Yeah, that, that's that, there's always been gator golf because they always build the golf courses by the water. Gator ball's different, baseball filled. You chum the baselines and the bases. Mm. 
You put five or six gators on the field. What would you chum with, like chicken? Yeah, There's chicken. that James Bond movie where they toss uh-huh. the chicken out? Yeah, yeah. If you one. go watch Swamp People, they have really good methods of chumming. Right. So I'd go have them probably professionally chum. They also chum. fish with shotguns. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I would also have them chum the, the, the uniforms of the athletes. Hmm. It's a super great game. It's baseball but with gators. Just add that element yeah. of possible death. If and if you get caught by a gator and rolled, inning over. You're out. It's immediate. <laughs> and no one's gonna save you. You gotta free yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Build. Anyway, wow. uh since we started talking gator ball, uh BYU Broadcasting's made it a point that anytime we talk about gators we have to play this disclaimer. The staff and management of BYU Radio do not condone the housing and boarding of alligators or any other illegally acquired reptiles in any private domicile. Yeah. You, you want to have, have the support of the administration right. and they constantly distance themselves Legal. from the content of the show. Legal has so much uh, to say about what we do on this show. But they'll have us play that, but then they come in laughing, thinking it's funny. Uh-huh. It's like they so they support it, but not all the way. Yeah. Right. In fact, they were looking for sponsors for Gator Ball. Mm. Here at BYU, they were going to start gator balling, but they don't have gators. They're hard to get to Utah. Right. Except we have a new story out. Oh, good. A family had a little surprise when they woke up, an Australian family, they woke up to a surprise in their bathroom. Hmm. And uh, I'm not going to tell the story. In fact, we're going to turn it over to one of our uh, wonderful reporters that's out on the scene. Shik Shumway is reporting on the surprise gator. An Australian family awoke to find someone had come into their house overnight and smuggled a saltwater crocodile into their bathroom. Coralie Myers says she wasn't sure if the crocodile was alive or not. Its eyes were open, but it wasn't moving. Apparently, the reptile's jaws had been bound, but was otherwise unrestricted. Myers was more concerned about a home invader than the crocodile. We now turn to Harlan J. Hickam, our wild game wrestler and tamer at the Matt Townsend Show. Harlan, what do you make of all this? First of all, Shig, I don't think this story is particu- particularly interesting. I mean, I, this gator was, what, only five and a half feet? That's, that's like a baby. It's a gatorito, if you will. And uh, B... This happens to all of us uh, one time or another. It just happened to me last week. I went up to the bathroom door and was about to go in when I hear this uh, unhappy growling noise. Uh, did it sound anything like this? Yeah, it's exactly like that. I I hear this growling. I, I say, Grandma, is that you? Yeah, you know, sometimes she get a little grumpy, but... I open the door, and this ten-foot gator's chewing on my exfoliating brush. Coincidentally, that gator wasn't the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my tub before. On occasion, I find uh, viper snakes, uh, prosthetic arms, hosiery. I tell you what, I'd rather see a gator in my tub than my wife's hosiery. My grandma even makes her famous shrimp and potato gumbo in the tub. She got a secret. She leave a little bit of the tub grime in there. Makes gives it a nice texture. Ah, uh, thank you, Harlan. We we get it. Ah, uh, you mentioned this problem is becoming rather commonplace. 
Any advice for our listeners that may come in contact with crocs or gators? Yeah, if you got you got a gator problem, you can do one of three things. One, I, I find that verbal insults work pretty. They work pretty good. Two, feed him nothing but vegan food, or D. And this is what we did. We you just move into an RV, and those things only come with with showers, which ain't big enough for gators. Thank you, Harlan. According to Miss Myers, she's unsure whether this crocodile was smuggled into the bathroom by a home invader or simply left there by a friend as a practical joke. Folks, we here at the Matt Townsend Show feel it is our duty to bring you this important message. If you're going to borrow a friend or neighbor's bathtub to wash your pet crocodile, don't forget to take the croc home with you afterwards. Or if you've left your crocodile there on purpose, perhaps for scares or to teach someone a lesson, please have the decency to tether its mouth shut, thereby allowing your victim at least a sporting chance of survival. Until next time, I'm Shik Shumway. Well done, Shik. Great advice. Man, Harlan, he was from another world. He was. He finds interesting things in his bathtub. Yeah. On a regular basis, apparently. <laughs> it's the hosiery, though, that gets yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, the vipers, I mean, you're, you're yeah. finding alligators, you may find some hosiery. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But you've been there before when, you know, mom's hose. Yeah. Fall into the tub and you're like, mom! Yeah. That's interesting. He When he went to the bathroom door, uh, he heard the growl. Hmm. And he thought it was maybe grandma? She gets grumpy, apparently, so. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I thought it was really good. Um, great advice, too. And that song, uh, I don't know what it was about that song. <laughs> it just reminded me of something. Ah! Shik Shumway reporting. That's great advice, though. If, uh, you know, if you don't want a gator in your bathroom, then just buy an RV and get, because they only have showers. Because then they can't be in your tub. You can probably buy an RV with a tub. Well, I bet Harlan can't. Oh, okay. Probably. I mean, not to be rude. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend anybody. Wow. Interesting. Hey, uh, we've got a great show for you. We're going to be talking about Shakespeare and the Shakespearean Festival. A lot of times when the word, uh, when you bring up the name Shakespeare, you might clear the room for some because they're, they're not into Shakespeare. But uh, we're going to be talking with a pro, true blue expert on uh, Shakespeare from the Utah Shakespearean Festival. They're friends of the show and friends of BYU Broadcasting. Trying to pick up our game a little bit here. Trying to educate us all. Hopefully understand what we're missing out on. Stick with us, folks. When we come back, Shakespeare on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You're familiar with his works, King Lear, Macbeth, Othello, Hamlet. Although William Shakespeare's plays first debuted at the Globe Theater 
in the uh, early 1600s, but his plays are still very much alive today as reenactment festivals occur across the country. Here to discuss the Utah Shakespearean Festival and its new venue in Cedar City, uh, Utah, is Joshua Stavros, who is the media and public relations manager for the festival. Josh, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, thanks for having me on. This is a... I remember as a child... How old was I? I was probably... Uh, 14, 15, went to the Shakespearean Festival, and some lovely ladies threw me against a maypole and then danced the maypole around me, entwining me in their ribbon, and I thought I had hit heaven. It was the greatest moment of my teenage life. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we could be a part of it. That's very exciting. When I heard we're going to have you on the show, I thought, perfect, let's talk maypole. Hey, um, Josh, talk about Shakespeare. A lot of times when uh, people bring up William Shakespeare, many get it, they understand their way into it, they understand the power of those plays and experiences, but others, I think we're afraid of it. We uh, we don't quite know how to relate to it. Well, it's it's funny you say that. We have a term at the Shakespeare Festival called Shakespeare, that there's (laughs) something that happens in middle and high school that uh, for a lot of people that just that just turns us off to it. Yeah. And I, I think it I think it comes down to the idea that sometimes in school we read these plays like they're books, like they're literature, but they were always meant to be seen and experienced live with actors in front of you. And I think one of the best chance one of the best things you can do for yourself, whether you've seen a lot of Shakespeare plays or uh, or are a little bit concerned, is try to see something live. To see these these wonderful words and these great ideas and incredible stories uh on a stage in front of you. And at the Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City, we uh, we have a couple of different stages. Our new, the Beverly Center for the Arts, which we just finished uh, this year. We have three theaters, uh, and two indoor theaters and a beautiful outdoor Shakespeare theater mm. where you can see Shakespeare live under the stars like you do, like you think they had at the Globe uh, many years ago. It's so such a beautiful say. experience. And it's... Um... And the outdoors, that actually does change it as well. I guess the Beverly Center is a new center that's – is it even larger than your outdoor uh, your outdoor auditorium? Well, that's a good question. You know, from the, from the outside, you know, you look at pictures online or you come down from the outside, the building looks much, much larger. Yeah. But one of the things we wanted to keep uh, from our old beautiful Adams Outdoor Shakespeare Theater, the one we've been using since 1977, is we wanted the theater itself, the, the stage and the seats to feel – very similar. It was a beautiful space and a great place to see theater. And as soon as you walk into our new outdoor theater, you can see that it's basically uh, the same. I mean, we, there's maybe 10 or 15 seats difference is all huh. from our old theater to our new. So as big as the building may look, the, the theater itself uh, is still beautiful and intimate and a great way to see uh, Shakespeare. You're, you're more than just you do plays, you do more than Shakespeare, there's other there's other um, shows you'll do, but you also are an educational facility. Talk, about, talk to us about how we can go about, uh, you know, becoming more educated around um, the arts, but also Shakespeare, and, and how we can make our kids or imp- impress upon our kids the power of, of seeing these things. Well, I mean, you hit it that, that, that Shakespeare is for everyone, I think, or, or theater, and especially live theater. One of the things that we pride ourselves on at the festival, our mission includes the phrase, you know, we aim to uh, entertain, enrich, and educate. And that's that's a big part of what we do. From coming, you know, just families coming down to the theater, uh, we have orientations, we have seminars, we have 
uh, backstage tours and lectures and things going on all the time. But being part of a, uh, of a university and being the, the whole center is the whole center is more than just the festival. We also have a beautiful new uh, art museum, the Southern Utah Museum of Art. And uh, the center itself, from a university mission perspective and from our own, is aimed at being a hub, a, a center that when you think about art in Southern Utah, this is the place you come, whether you're talking about live theater, you're talking about dance, or you're talking about beautiful fine art on the walls or sculptures or whatnot. And the, the festival's mission is to, to forward that. We have, it out, we have an educational program that uh, visits schools all over the West in the, uh, the wintertime when we're not there in the summer. And for families, I think the best thing you can do is just experience art wherever you can. There's, there's so much to do in southern in, in Utah overall. I mean, there's so many great theater companies. There's so many great museums. BYU I now has many of itself. And I think, I mean, if I, if I, if I was giving advice to families, it would be that uh, get do everything you can because uh, helping a, a young child or a teenager uh, understand the world through art, whether it's theater or another kind, is invaluable as we move to the future and, and have to, you know, interpret and, and live in the world that we do. Yeah. Uh, Having an artistic, having an appreciation and an understanding of of that world can come even more through art and and you know for us it's specifically through Shakespeare and theater and musicals like Mary Poppins you know what better way to talk about families than a musical like Mary Poppins right I mean and that I guess that's the that's the thing too is um, the discussions you'll you'll have with your families just the experience because you also have mm-hmm. the green what do you call them the green shows. Okay. The Green Show, yep. Oh. Every, every night, so six nights a week, Monday through Saturday, there's a free performance that happens on our, our stage just outside our theater, and it's music and it's dance. That's where you dance the maple. Exactly. Uh, and there's there's so much uh, there's so much to do down in Cedar City other than just a night at the theater uh, and, for families and and people of all ages. And for everybody that I mean, for the a lot of our listeners aren't in Utah, and so. Yeah. They, but they could plan a trip to southern Utah where they – that's where all the red rocks are, all the beautiful parks. Many state parks are down there. And just a few miles away is Cedar City and the Shakespearean Festival. How, when do you guys run um, the majority of when, – when is the festival? Good question. So we, we run most primarily from uh, June through October. We have a number of different shows. Uh, right now we have seven shows open. Uh, from June to right right now, but we open June through October. We run all summer long, six days a week, Monday through Saturday. We have we don't have shows on Sunday, but you know today is the you know hundredth anniversary of the national park system. It's a great mm. uh, time to say that coming to Southern Utah, there's so much to do and see. Uh, bring your families, visit Zion National Park or Bryce Canyon, or go to a state park during the day, and then come up to Cedar City and see uh, world class live theater at night. Uh, there's no better family vacation. Really, there's not. And one of the things is I grew up with, uh, my parents had divorced. And so, you know, funds were tight. But my mom would take us down to Cedar City. I had a sister that was going to school there. And two or three times, I remember going down to the theaters in the summer, watching those plays, not understanding everything um, about them. And, and so, I mean, what I love though is knowing ahead of time. Okay, this is this is a this is a comedy, so you're gonna like this. And, and then my mom would walk me through the story, and I could then look for the story as I'm watching it. And, and but then watching the sword fights, very real, seemingly sword <laughs> oh, yeah. fights. Oh yeah. It, I mean, it's it brings back I think incredible memories for me. What? How how do we how do we prepare the child? 
or anybody really. So if I'm somebody that's not, you know, hasn't read a lo- up a lot on Shakespeare, I don't know all of the stories. How would you suggest we come prepared to enjoy it even that's more? A great, that's a great question. Our, uh, you know, our our website bard.org has a ton of uh, materials to help people prepare. We have uh, written synopses and character lists for every play we've ever done and every Shakespeare play, which hmm. is also. Got. And then we also create for our, each current season, we create what we call audio orientation. So a quick five or ten minute uh, audio recording of someone giving you the, uh, the background on a play, a little bit of the story, not enough to spoil, but enough to get you started. Um, and it's a great way to, you know, jumping on a website and, and click on education and study guides. And there's uh, more materials and articles than you can know what to do with on every single play. And it's a great way to... Uh, to learn a little more just to, as a great study aid in school. And to, as you say, you know, that experience with your mom preparing you, getting you ready, because once you, that, that, that fear is gone, once you have an understanding of what you're going to see, it becomes that much more enjoyable mm. and you'll be able to experience it uh, without having to worry or, or stress about, well, what's happening now? I don't know. You know, you don't necessarily pick up every single word, but right. the stories are clear. And when you see the actors doing what they're doing, it, it, it makes sense. Oh, I love it. Um, let's take a break and come back. When we come back, I want to get into uh, some of the shows that you're actually offering this year. Again, uh, more than just Shakespeare as well. I am dying to find out what the Coconuts <laughs> is all about. We'll get to that in a minute, folks. We'll continue the discussion with Joshua Stavros from the Utah Shakespearean Festival. You can find out more about their festival and everything going on um, down there in Cedar City at bard.org, www.bard.org. Um, also, a, apparently a super resource for all things Shakespeare. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Continue the discussion. Gentlemen, Hysteria proudly presents the plots of all 37 plays by William Shakespeare. Hamish's real father is killed by his brother, who now becomes king and then marries his mother. It ends up with everyone killing each other, and that is the story that's told by the part. Hey, Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking a little bit of Shakespeare and the Shakespearean Festival uh, in Cedar City, Utah. It's called the Utah Shakespearean Festival. And uh, wonderful experience, I think, for everybody. It really is a, somewhere you could plan an incredible vacation. Go hike the the, the great parks in Utah. Every uh, you know, every family should experience some of the beauty of Southern Utah. Along with while you're there, you know, June through October, you probably ought to hit Cedar City and go to the Shakespearean Festival. Joining us is Joshua Stavros. He is the media and public relations manager for the festival, and uh, he's also on faculty there with the College of Performing and Visual Arts and the Utah Shakespearean Festival. It also in, is, uh, acts as the associate education director. So, Joshua, thanks again for being with us. I, I mean, I, I won't do it better than, uh, than you know, the Animaniacs did a little earlier. <laughs> did I, love, you? I love talking Shakespeare. <laughs> you love the Animaniacs. By the way, Joshua, you're the only guy that could have recognized who that was. Oh, man. You I killed it. I, big, part, big part of my job. Now, now <laughs> the, fu- the fun thing about uh, this year is you have, you have a variety of plays. They're all not Shakespeare. So maybe run us through your lineup this year. And, uh, and especially I need you to explain the Cocoa Nuts. Coconut. Coconut. I'll give it to you sort of by theater. So our outdoor Engelstad Shakespeare Theater, that's one of our new ones. We have uh, two Shakespeare plays and a third in there. We have the great Shakespeare comedy, Much Ado About Nothing, 
Beatrice and Benedict, Battle of Wits. Uh, you know, are they in love? Are they not in love? Uh, great, great comedy. We have the Shakespeare history play, Henry V, mm. one of the great English kings, uh, story of his sort of uh, triumphant rise to power. Some of the great, uh, some great Shakespeare speeches in there. If you've ever heard the phrase band of brothers, we, yeah. we, we happy few, all that's Henry V. And then the third play in there is still classic literature, but it isn't Shakespeare. It's a really great adaptation of The Three Musketeers, the great French story. Uh, you talked about sword fighting earlier. There is That's there it. is a lot of really great and intense sword fighting uh, in this play as well as some fun costumes and other things. So that's what we have outside in our uh, indoor theater, our small indoor 200-seat theater, which is also new. We have Julius Caesar, another Shakespeare play, the great political thriller, uh, and Murder for Two, a fun musical. Because uh, what's not fun about murder? Uh, a fun mu- murder musical uh, that's really just two actors. They sing, they dance. One of them plays 16 different roles. Uh, and more than that, in addition to the singing and the acting and the dancing, uh, they pl- are their own piano accompaniment. There's no orchestra. The piano's there on stage. Wow. And they play uh, for themselves. It's an incredible experience to watch. And then inside the theater, our big indoor theater, we have Mary Poppins, Walt Disney's great uh, Mary Poppins, the the musical. And then lastly, to to talk about what your question is, The Coconuts. And it's uh, it's actually a sort of new adaptation of an older musical that's a Marx Brothers show, that it was one of the very first uh, shows the Marx Brothers were ever again. It was a film in the 1920s, and it's Groucho, Harpo, Chico, all the great sort of Marx Brothers shtick and laughs uh, there with, with the music of Irving Berlin. Hmm. Uh, same, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, speaking of Animaniacs, it's basically if Animaniacs or the Looney Tunes came to life on stage... Uh, that's what you're watching when you watch the coconuts. It's uh, madcap farcical hilarity. <laughs> you you really have got it all. I mean, that's somebody. You're going to everyone will be entertained one way or another yeah. at the festival. We work really hard, actually, as we program each season to plan each season to really think about you know what's gonna what's gonna complement each other these things. You know, which shows are gonna complement each other for the family that loves musicals that's used to seeing that on the Wasatch Front but wants some Shakespeare. There's a little of both and. Uh, from classic musicals to, you know, Murder for Two is just a couple of years old. It's relatively new, but uh, is is one of the most fun and entertaining theatrical experiences, especially in a little 200 seat theater. You know, where you're right up next to the action. Is is uh, I mean, I remember reading Julius Caesar, Et tu Brute, all that, and thinking, and then going and seeing it, and I thought totally different experience. But what a way to to engage your children, um, have them read something like that, and then experience it on 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 stage would be amazing. Absolutely, but you know, Julius Caesar uh, uh, gets that gets read in a lot of uh, middle and high school classrooms, and you know, it, as, as great as reading it is with your class, there is it, it it's coming to life on the stage makes it more understandable, more relevant, yeah. more interesting, more entertaining than and. Uh, than anything else. So wasn't it true back in the day, back in Shakespeare's time, the uh, the women were not allowed to be on the stage. They weren't un- weren't allowed to act. That's true. The, the nature of the laws in England at the time was it was it was unseemly for a woman to have to be up on the stage acting. So uh, all the roles were played by men, um, including the the young female roles, which. Uh, which added, I think, even at the time, an element of uh, of comedy to a show. Everyone sort of accepted that this was the case, and yeah. I'm sure everyone in the audience was like, "Yeah, I mean, it's he was okay as Juliet, but it <laughs> would really be nice to see, you know, a woman play yeah. that role." And or you know, Beatrice and Benedict, um, the romance came alive when the, when the laws changed. And, and so now at the at the theater, um, 
the women are all playing the roles. It seems like they might there might be a dearth of roles. There might be fewer roles for women. It's it, it, it's funny you should say that. There's a lot of uh, you know in the theatrical community, academically speaking, there's a lot of conversations about that about uh, about when you, you know when when a company does Shakespeare plays, what do we do for the women? Because there's usually, I mean, at times there can be a cast of twenty and only three or four roles for women. Huh. So what we what many companies do and we do as well is we we try to cast uh, roles that it, where it isn't necess- doesn't necessarily uh, a romantic part or something like that. We cast. Uh, either men or women. And Henry V is a good example. There's this great role for a French um, messenger that uh, named Montjoy, and it's a, it's a great role. And the young, there's a young woman playing it, Kelly Rogers, that, uh, that she brings an entirely new perspective and new life to this role that could just be you know, your average basic uh, French messenger, but mm. because we took the chance to, to cast a, a great actress in the role, uh, it takes new perspective. And I think Great theater companies are looking for opportunities everywhere to find that sort of gender parity in, in casting to make sure that great, the great roles are being played by women as well as men in these great classic literature plays. Yeah. What, uh, so when Joshua Stavros is, you know, has a free hour, which – and you've already seen all of these shows, I'm assuming. Yep. Which one do you drop in on? If you can drop in on one, what's oh. the one that you've got to just – you want to be there for that well, moment. It, it depends on how much time I have. If I'm uh, if I'm there in the evening and it's one of the outdoor plays, um, if I only have a minute or two. I'll jump in and catch a sword fight or two in in, uh, in Three Musketeers. If I, if it's later in the evening and I know I have time, the last half of of Henry V is amazing. Huh. And if I'm at work in the afternoon and have a spare minute, I will always pop over uh, to watch some comedy in the Coconuts or Mary <laughs> Poppins. That uh, the music is great. The orchestra is good. Um, the, our, 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 up till now, we've uh, our 200 seat theater has been pretty sold out. It's, we're just starting to open up availability, so as listeners want to come, you can see Julius Caesar from and Murder for Two. So hmm. I'm excited to get back into those shows and uh, and watch them again because hmm. it's been difficult to see. You also the... I, I, I didn't even mention there's one more show we're opening in September. We're doing Neil Simon's The Odd Couple. Oh, great! Um, you know the in our Randall Theater. And, and our artistic, we have two artistic directors, Brian Vaughn and David Ivers. They're incredible directors, incredible actors. And this year, they are both playing Felix and Oscar. So Holy they're going to alternate back and forth between the roles That's cool. uh, during the week. Uh, so there, there's a show that I'll, I'll be ready to catch every afternoon I can because I'll get to see my bosses switching off in roles <laughs> that are huge and hilarious. And hopefully they'll be doing a great job. Now, you guys do a lot of outreach um, to the to communities, to schools around the country uh, and around, I guess, predominantly probably the West. What uh, uh-huh. how does that work? And, and if, if schools are interested in, in talking to you to see if that can work, how do they go about That's doing a great that? Que- it's a great question. We have a lot of our educational program is huge. We have camps and classes during the summer. But our, our sort of crown jewel, I think, is that uh, February through April, we have a small nine person cast. That take, and take a touring production of a cut-down Shakespeare play out to schools and communities all through Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Idaho, uh, sometimes into Colorado, and it's a gr- and and we perform in, in the schools. So students who may not have a lot of chances to see live theater, we say, great, you don't have to come to Cedar City, you don't have to go somewhere else. We're going to come to you. We are in their auditorium or their cafeteria or, or everywhere in between, and. Uh, a show that'll fit in a you know in a class period for a middle and a high school student, uh, and then we do workshops with them. So we partner with the Utah State Office of Education for some of our funding, and then we well, we have some great sponsors that help us. And then we take care of the rest. And it's uh, there are some of these communities you know we 
we were up in Tintic last year. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, hit, trying to hit every every county in the state as often as we can. Um, and if, as far as interest, if a school is interested in booking, we would love to love to have them uh, involved. There are grants available if we've never been before. We, odds are you can get uh, the performance for free. Uh, and just visit bard.org slash tour or just uh, jump online and uh, email our uh, education department at usfeducation at bard.org and they'll be able to give you more information. But uh, that's the way I was introduced to the Shakespeare Festival. Uh, my school came and saw a production of Macbeth in the in the 1990s and huh. it completely changed my understanding of how that play could be done and what it, it could look like. And and I, I liked, I've liked Shakespeare my whole life. I never thought I'd necessarily have a career in it but yeah. seeing that seeing that production changed everything well isn't that neat and i mean and you have that story you're tied you're you're tied oh, yeah. and bound by it and now you're paid for it just like yeah and you know and it's not dissimilar to you you know you had that experience with your your mom yeah. and in cedar city and the green shows you know uh, that has left an indelible mark it's just, it's not dissimilar for me and i'm excited to you know it's great that i get to do it as a job but i love seeing students experience Shakespeare off the page, live and in person, and, uh, and have the stories affect them. It either relate to something in their own lives or imagine their world being different just from, just from storytelling. Yeah, it's art. And art changes, our art can change you profoundly at, at any level, right? Even at any level that you understand it. I didn't understand what was happening with the Maypole, but I did realize later it was love. I was in love. Well, Josh, we appreciate you, man. Great work there at the Utah Shakespearean Festival. Keep it up. Thank you, Matt, and uh, we'll look forward to, you know, next time you come down, we'll break out the old green, uh, maple. Yes. You can relive your youth. I do. I'll, I'll be back. I'll see you probably late Great. September. Good stuff. Again, Joshua Stavros with the Utah Shakespearean Festival. Man, powerful stuff. Go to go to their website, though, and uh, and make sure you, you really look into it. Plan a, plan a trip, you know, next year even. Bard.org. Bard.org is the name of the website. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Shines in a different way. And I smell the sea like it never Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's it's an interesting experience. As I was talking about with the Shakespearean Festival, my mom, single mom, made it happen, right? She made sure that I would at least obtain some education, some appreciation for the arts. And uh, it started to get my mind thinking about all of the different uh, lessons that I've learned from women in my life, and especially mothers, grandmothers, my wife, we're learning. We're learning lessons. And so in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to take a little time to, to focus on lessons, right, and lessons from moms. For example, my mom taught me an interesting lesson about many hands make light work and healthy children. A lot of us, it seems like, we're not letting our kids work. We we kind of do everything for them. We drive them everywhere. I had a child the other day that needed a ride to school that was 
I don't know, less than a mile away. Just walk, you know. Well, but it's far. Not really. Not really. I would walk far to school every day. And my kids look at me like, you're crazy, Dad. Like, come on. That's I'm not going to walk. Well, then why don't you ride your skateboard? That's a long way to ride a skateboard, Dad. Well, actually, you, you ride it a lot farther than that, son. My mom taught me, though, that uh, you got to work. Every day when in the summer, she'd leave for work and we'd be given some chores to do. That's where I learned to weed. And I learned the old-fashioned way because we grew weeds. To this day, I still am incredible at growing weeds. And But my wife was very – or my mother was very careful about making sure that we would weed and she'd move the rake down the garden and say, look, you got to weed this section today. And then I learned a really cool trick. You don't have to weed. Just shovel the dirt and – Throw it and just turn turn the weeds underneath the dirt. You don't have to weed. If what she wants to see is dirt, I can show her dirt. And then about a day later, all the weeds would grow through the dirt. <sighs> but I learned. And what I found out is that uh, instead of just quitting and not doing my work, she made sure we did our chores and we did our jobs and we did our laundry and we ironed our clothes And uh, my sister would cook the meal and we would be vacuuming. And I remember every day at 530 because my mom would be home about six. The house was astir with all of the kids doing the work that needed to get done before mom got home from work. And it was so awesome. So I appreciate that my mom made me work, pushed it, you know, I guess in some ways forced it. And I challenge all of us. To do that more. Another lesson I learned was from my own wife about the importance of sticking to your principles when it's easier not to, right? Sometimes it's not easy to, to do the hard thing. Sometimes it's not easy to, to sit and we, every night we try to have some family time, bring all the kids in. We usually would read a scripture. We would kneel. We'd have a prayer. We'd talk about the day and the next day. I, you know, even last night we were thinking, oh, come on, school just started. All my kids are moaning, no, let's wait, let's start it tomorrow, let's do it tomorrow. And even I was about ready to go there. But my wife's like, nope, we're going to stick to our principles, and if our principles are reading and praying as a family, we're going to do it every night. So I appreciate a simple lesson by a parent, my wife. The power of seeing good in everyone was a lesson taught by my grandma. Um, Every, you know, when parents divorce, Family members pick sides usually. But there was one woman that never picked a side, and it was my um, my grandmother, my mother's mother. In fact, the person that I heard the most positive things about, my father, was my mother's mother. I remember my grandma, Melba McFarland, would always talk about my dad's humor, my dad's skills, his talent, his ability. She always praised my father. And I would hear so much positive from her that it really it reinforced in me what a great dad I've got. And ironically, that was my mother's mother. So there's power in seeing the good in everyone. Again, a lesson, just a simple lesson taught by my mother's mother. They're everywhere, folks. The healing power of a good laugh. 
was another lesson that I uh, that I learned, and and that was sadly again taught to me by my wife when I was passing a kidney stone, dying. I thought I was going to die. It felt like I was having a child. In fact, when I passed the stone, I named it as I would name a child, and I held it in my arms. Actually, I held it in my fingertips. Cute little chip. Beautiful, beautiful chip off the old block, we used to call him. And uh, I'm sitting there dying, really can't breathe, killing myself. And my wife just started laughing because she was so stressed out, not knowing what to do, never having seen me on the ground rolling around in such pain. Nervously, she just started laughing. Of course, I thought it was rude. But uh, that and on many other occasions, she just made me laugh, that laughter really can be a powerful uh, tool to help us heal. And the final lesson was by my mother-in-law, who every day was serving somebody, taking care of somebody, the homeless. uh, She'd take care of people that were, um, you know, ill and sick at home. She would go in as a certified nurse. She'd go in and take care of them and serve them, do their grocery shopping, do everything she could for them. Lessons, the importance of serving one another and the next person and the next person serving everyone you can. By the way, all lessons from women in my life, just like going to the Shakespearean Festival, appreciating the arts, getting out, and even if you don't have money, you can still learn and grow. Those lessons are for everyone, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. That's what we're doing on this program. We'll take a break. Come back. We have one more hour with you today. Hour number three up next. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. We've got a great show for you lined up, locked and loaded, so to speak. If you have a hard time getting exercise into your life and your daily schedule, maybe you just can't find the motivation to go walking or exercising, guess what? We have solved your problem. Problem solved with some new research. We will be speaking with a Ph.D. candidate student who worked on a study about if you exercise with a purpose and remember the purpose, it generates motivation. Motivation 101. Does it? According to the researchers, yes. Okay. Terry. I've I've questioned this on many different levels. Yes. Like the whole idea of running a marathon for a cause. How is your marathon helping the cause? Well, no, and I think that I think, but people I, I don't people know if that's use, what she means. People use the cause as motivation as they work out for the marathon. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's more like not a cause. It's more seeing the purpose clearly of why you work out is different than having to work out. Like seeing the purpose of it 
it makes me feel good. It, I can see that it changes my body and my sense of self. So is this more selfish in the sense that you're thinking only about yourself and why it matters yeah. to you? I don't think it's going to just necessarily help you run the fun run for the cancer society. Because people use that as motivation. No, sure they do. Right? There's, there's they actually a, use it more probably for fundraisers. There's a Nike commercial, I think it is, where a guy's working out and he's a big guy. Yeah, and you can see he's struggling, but like he's on the treadmill, and down on the treadmill, he keeps a picture of his daughter. See that? that there you go. Like yeah. if you're doing it for your daughter, you work out every day, and what's your motivation? I don't know. Halfway through every workout, I'm questioning every choice I've made up until that point. <laughs> but, Why am I doing this? But are you not the guy that stands in front of the mirror and just like flexes each one of your muscles individually and no. watches them vibrate? No. Oh, sorry. Thought no. that was you. No, that's not me. I kept calling Terry. Stop it, Terry. Get away from the mirror. I do it because, well, because you, you're hot. Well, no, you see people as they age and hips and knees and all. They 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 can't move. They yeah. can't walk. And if you continue to move and you continue to you know work out that you, just by you, just moving and exercising, just basic things, you can continue to be able to walk through the rest of your life. We just found your purpose. So fear is the motivator. Basically. Yeah. Fear of bad hips. But again, halfway through, I'm like, this isn't worth it. Yeah, but then you think about it again. Well, I could be – I could have bad hips. I could have bad knees, mm-hmm. shoulders, legs, and toes. Heads and toes, knees and elbows. Yeah. Eyes, ears, mouth, and nose. <laughs> you could have that. You could. But you have a purpose fixed in your brain. And then it fades and you're like, this is hurting me. This is hurting my hips. This isn't enjoyable. What am I doing? Yeah. That's why I don't exercise. It is in the end. I I do enjoy it. Every time I go to a funeral where somebody that I'm I'm visiting their family because they passed away, but they were somebody that were really – they were health conscious, I Mm. think, see? It's not worth it. (laughs) It didn't help them. didn't help them. Not even going to try. There you go. It's always the people that hardly try. We've got uh, that coming up about, you know, exercising with a purpose may help. Also, a a Russian balloonist breaks an around-the-world record. Hmm. Circumnavigated the world. That's pretty cool. How do you – I mean, that's a big deal. Right. In in a balloon. Hmm. We have an interview with him. Of course you do. Awesome. We sent our cameras there and uh, pretty much right when he got out of the balloon – we interviewed him. And I like how we spent all this on like a, a visual infrastructure for uh-huh. the show when uh-huh. it's purely an audio medium. It's purely radio. It's awesome. But we got some great video. We don't ever show the video. We just play the audio. Yeah, it's great. The cool thing about this one, we got to use our translator because the guy speaks Russian. Oh, nice. We used our translator, which means we can- We, we have a translator? Yeah, we can translate any. It's actually not a human. It's a machine. Well, how big is our budget? It's huge. Every day we add either to the yeah. reporting team or right. we bring in a new piece of equipment. Or... No, our budget. Don told me, do whatever it takes. Nice. He's like John Hammond in uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Spare no expense. Spare no expense. So we should really get a Tesla mm-hmm. just for testing purposes. A team Tesla. Yeah. How are we supposed to talk about a Tesla if we haven't driven one ourselves? I'll talk to Don. Okay, good. I better write that down. Talk to Don about the Tesla. Now that they've improved ludicrous speed. Yeah. <laughs> Ludicrous speed is the great rapper speed. Yes, it is. Uh, so we'll get to that as well, the story about the balloonist. But first, we must get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's up? Thanks, Matt. 
A railing collapsing at a concert is causing a huge stir. Lawyers representing 17 people injured when a railing collapsed at a Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa concert in New Jersey have filed a lawsuit against the venue's operator and the performers, claiming they didn't take enough precautions to ensure concert goers would be safe. The lawsuit filed yesterday in a Philadelphia court does not specify what damages are being sought. President Barack Obama yesterday designated 87,500 acres in Maine's North Woods as a national monument as the administration prepares to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. The new monument includes mountains, forests, and a river that will serve as a protected area. The White House said the designation was completed in honor of the centennial anniversary of the Park Service, which will be officially observed today. The Florida emergency facilities that treated the victims of the Pulse Gay Nightclub massacre in Orlando this summer will not bill the patients involved in the horrific event. The companies Orlando Health and Florida Hospital announced yesterday that they will instead write off at least $5.5 million in care. On June 12th, 49 people were killed and dozens more were injured after Omar Mateen opened fire on more than 100 unsuspecting club goers. So, sad story, but kind of a really cool happy ending. And there you have it, Matt. Those are your headlines for today. Thank you, Caitlin, so much. Appreciate the insight. By the way, I failed to mention it is KISS and make up day now kiss and make up now today is the day that if you've if you've had a problem with somebody gotten in a fight hmm. and it, it ought probably to be your significant other yeah you just to I mean? play it safe right i mean so if you fought with a coworker, i don't know if i'd go do the kiss maybe, and make maybe up a, a good handshake or pat yeah. on the back this is a handshake and make up day yeah <laughs> a little pat on the back day you know any annoying habits any issues you've got with people, today's the day to let them go. And if you can't, ah, sealed with a kiss. Boy. Why did you just get... It's just creepy. What about that was creepy? Just it is. How about this? This won't creep you out. It's National Banana Split Day. There's always money in the banana stand. There's always money in the banana stand. Really? Yeah. What's that? Uh, that's just from the great movie of all time. Why are organic bananas, like... 50 cents more at the grocery store than just normal bananas. Let's have Jeff answer that. Well, they're smaller too, aren't they? Yeah. You think they charge more for, you know, there's more bulk over here. Well, no, they were hand-grown. I guess, but... Well, that's that's kind of the new trend is you pay more for things that are smaller. Yeah. It's... It's just... It's a bait-and-switch plan. It's inconsistent. It's a program. It's inconsistent. But that also means... You know, small people have got a reason to live. Because they can have organic bananas? Yeah. Okay. Isn't that, wasn't sense. that Pluto's problem? He was having an inferiority complex because he's a small planet. Yeah. Small planet. Not even a, well. Dwarf planet. It's like they, they included planet just to, you know, keep him happy a little bit. Because he's, he's more just like a, a moon. I think the PC term is little planet. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, little planet. Poor Pluto. Yeah. Crazy. No respect. <laughs> crazy, crazy Pluto. By the way, I didn't even get into the fact that Mickey had a dog named Pluto, right? No, you, you mentioned that yesterday. Because that's embarrassing. But that came later. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Hey, Russian balloonist breaks the around-the-world record. Hmm. This is cool. Russian But bal- the guy that broke the record in the New York City subway, not so cool. No, that's... Who wants to go to every subway station? Well, who wants to float around the world in a balloon? Would you not love to tell people you went around the world? 
I mean, that well, used I, to be one I, of the greatest adventures ever. I'd tell them I wouldn't want to do it. It'd just take too long. It only took 11 days. You have to have to talk to people in the balloon. 11 days. Uh, so listen to this. 64-year-old balloonist um, passed directly over the airfield in western Australian town of no- Northam. Hmm. 11 days earlier, he started there. And he, he made he completely circumnavigated the world. Are they sure he didn't just float around Australia yeah. and come no. back around for I think, I think a return they trip? Him. Okay. They used Santa's uh, radar okay. tracking yeah. system. <laughs> That's foolproof. The the interesting thing is it was the record was confirmed by the World Air Sports Federation. Mm. And Oh. Here we go. Here's some audio of, of his, uh, flight. his balloon taking off. Yeah. You can see it. It's up there in the distance. Interesting thing about the balloon, unlike this song, it didn't have a hundred helium or thousands of helium balloons. It just had one big helium-filled balloon. So it's like a big Garfield balloon. Did you see that? No. Yeah, it's a, he, he fills it up oh, and it, it, no, it's, it's a not, cartoon cat. it's not cat. in the shape of a Garfield. Oh, it isn't? No, it's probably just more... More of a, just a balloon? Like a silver wi- or a white balloon, just huge, filled huh. with helium. It's not like the Eiffel Tower or something? No, it's, oh. it's not in any they shape. Have those. It's not the Macy's Parade. <laughs> He's, but here's the crazy thing, he he passes it's not the Snoopy? he passes the so, end mark right. So he right. Ma- he made the trip. Mm. He succeeded, but it took him a hundred miles to land. Right. And apparently, it's because he was struggling to get the helium out of the balloon. Mm. So he just kind of kept floating. Right. Um, but he figured out a way to do it, and okay. it wasn't the conventional way. He had to get it out somehow. Let this play out. See where you're going. Well, no, it's just the facts. I'm just telling the facts of helium? the record. Okay. And um, so he, had to, he found a way to suck it out and get uh-huh. the helium out. And right when he landed, we happened to have one of our reporters there to get a microphone in his face. He is Russian. Yeah. And so we're going to listen to his response and also the translation of his response using our Russian translator. Nice. Mm. Russian. It's a beautiful language. Beautiful language. Yeah. So we put the translator on it, and uh, tell us what happened with that, Jeff. Well, it didn't work for some reason. Um, yeah, I, it usually does, but I think it was the helium that threw it off. Yeah, the the tone of the voice maybe made it harder for the translator to work. Yeah, but when we put our helium filter on the English oh, translation, yeah. that helium is what did work. Yeah. So here's that. I tried to release the helium uh, with the lever, hmm. but I was unable to do so. And so I thought to myself, perhaps if I were to inhale some of the helium, it would... Release mm-hmm. itself into my body, and uh, that way I would be able to land into Australia. But uh, it meant that my voice would sound like this. Why does the translation software have an accent? Um, it's because it's translating. Yeah, but <laughs> it has an accent. It's translating Russian. Is there a glitch? No. There's no. some issue with the software? That's just how the helium filter works. <laughs> with an accent. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you uh, think? The, the other question I had, is this a hot air balloon? No, it's a helium balloon. Helium-filled balloon. Is that what it said? Yeah. Okay. It's a helium-filled balloon, but the guy was hot. Okay. Yeah, don't question the technology. Yeah, I'm just... No, because just you trying can to choose. Try. We could choose any accent. Yeah. and So we chose an English-Russian accent with the helium filter. Right. 
So you can't filter out helium. The helium filter maintains the integrity of the original yeah. accent. Okay, just just some questions I had. No, I'm glad there's a logical Jeff, explanation for it all. Jeff is um, he? I don't. He's he's the creator, really, mm. of the filter system, and it seems to work well. He, he knows the he guy knows. had a plausible thought of let's try to remove some of the helium. Maybe yeah. the, the balloon will come the down. The lever wasn't working. Yeah. So he's like, I got to get it out somehow, so or he's going to float forever. Releasing it, he decided to consume it. Yeah. Did it say whether or not he beat uh, Phineas or is it Phileas Fogg's hmm. record from around the world in eighty days? How many days was this? Uh, Eleven. Yeah, he crushed oh. it. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's got it. Yeah, he did, crushed it. Did he have it. some sort of motor? Nope. Or propulsion system? Nope. Hmm. Just helium. Caught a nice transatlantic breeze or something. I mean, eleven. I mean, do you remember? Uh, it was two days quicker than the record that was set by the late American Steve Fawcett mm. in 2002. Bam! He crushed it. So we need another American to get that record back. Yeah. We probably do. Mm. But just or, so you know, when we put the helium filter on, it's going to have an American accent. So as, if, as long as you're okay with that. No, I'm fine. I just wanted to, I've never heard a translator oh, come yeah. back with a... An accent. Well, we thought that usually that would, it's just you know a straight. I think that's the mistake a lot of translators make is they just like go you know rush into English, right? But we think after watching a lot of movies <laughs> that you want if it's Russian, you yeah. would want a Russian English accent. It makes sense. It keeps the story consistent. It's quality we're looking for. It's the quality <laughs> that we bring to the Matt Townsend show. I mean, a lot of shows wouldn't do that, but a lot of shows don't have Jeff Simpson. Thank you. Yep. The man, the myth, the legend when it comes to uh, audio filtering. Plus, his mom thinks he's cute. It's all good. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be speaking about purpose, motivation, and exercise, how they all fit together. Stick with us. It's the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer by working out. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As several recent studies have confirmed, as many as 95% of people don't meet the amount of exercise the government recommends. Doctors will say that even some exercise is better than none, but why is it so hard to make time for it if we all know it's so important? Stephanie Hooker joins us. She's a health psychologist, and uh, she's here with us this morning to help us find out more about the power of purpose in motivating us to work out. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, you are a Ph.D. candidate in clinical health psychology. You're, You're wrapping it up then, aren't you? Yeah, I've completed my dissertation, and I'm just finishing my clinical degree requirements right now before I get my final degree. Uh, and then you're into that big money, Stephanie. Uh, hopefully. That's awesome. Probably not. <laughs> I know. It's still just, it's awesome. It's great to have you. So you you were involved in a study and uh, talked about it, published it in the Journal of Health Psychology, which is, I think, where we found it, actually in an article on Time magazine. Talk to us about what you are learning when it comes to motivation and purpose. Sure. So we have gotten into this, as we mentioned already, you know, people are not 
physically active. And we all know that we should be physically active. Right. And so what I got interested in was what motivates people to be physically active. And this all started back when I was actually working with patients and a patient had mentioned um, who had, you know, been struggling to lose weight and being active. He was just really not motivated. And so we tried to explore like what's going on in your life. He mentioned that you know, the thing that was most important to him was his granddaughter. Mm. And so we were able to use that as his motivation for losing weight. And he actually became very successful and became more active, lost some weight. So anecdotal evidence was really supporting this idea that people have to have a bigger reason to be physically active. And so this brought us to this sense of purpose, you know, feeling that you have a goal in life, there are things in life that really matter to you, and really motivate you to do whatever it is that you do. But when people can connect that sense of purpose to the reasons why they want to be physically active, we think that that's actually helpful. Huh. So it, it could be the per- it, it almost doesn't matter the purpose. It could it just has to be connected to your your desire to exercise. Exactly. So, you know, everybody has a different sense of purpose. You know, for me it's trying to find a way to make people healthier and live longer and more fulfilling lives. Mm -hmm. And so if you can connect that your sense of purpose, you know, whatever that may be, maybe it's family, it's your career, to why you want to take care of yourself. Because physical activity ultimately is taking care of yourself. It gives you more energy, you you feel less depressed, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of benefits for your physical health down the line. And so if you can make that connection to why today I need to do some physical activity to, you know, what's really important to you in life, we think that's really the key. Is it, um, does it work, for example, it seems like a lot of people have to lose maybe a little weight in order to get back to their, uh, their um, what do they call them, reunion with their high school. Mm-hmm. So they're all excited, and it seems like a lot of people can get their act together. <laughs> they're focused for six months. They lose the weight. They get into their same size that they had when they were in high school. Is that the same motivation simply because they had the purpose of looking good for the for the reunion? Is that the same impact as having a bigger kind of overall life purpose? So I think you just hit the nail on the head. No, it's really not. You know, it's, we, all, we also see this in, um, with brides as they approach their weddings. Yeah. You know, they want to lose the weight. And research has shown that generally after those events have passed, people start going back to their old habits and they gain back the weight they had lost. See? So ultimately, you want to think about the, the bigger overarching life purpose, this thing that's not going to go away, right? You know, that right. reunion is going to end, the wedding will be over, but something at the, after that is going to have to keep you going. When you were doing the study, so how, how, did you, how did you go about analyzing this and figuring this out? Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took 100 community members. We were actually in upstate New York at the time. And we had them complete some questionnaires, one of them being that sense of purpose. So people um, reported things like, I have a reason for living. Hmm. There's, my activities are important, that it, you know, that type of thing. And it's a, you know, a validated measure of purpose. And then what we had them do is we had them wear accelerometers for three days. So accelerometers is just a fancy dis- uh, name for a device that measures movement. We have them in our smartphones now. We have them in our Fitbits, things like that. Um, but we use kind of a research-grade uh, accelerometer. 
And then what we did was just look at the um, relationship between that sense of purpose and their average movement over those three days. So we picked, you know, a weekday, a weekend day, and a Friday, which is kind of in between for some people, and uh, showed that the relationship was positively correlated. Hmm. So after controlling for a lot of other measures that we have, so we looked at um, does optimism play a role or does somebody's uh, level of depression play a role. And in the end, after controlling for several possible things that could explain this relationship, we found that, no, purpose was really the strongest predictor of activity. Is Was this your dissertation? That was actually my master's thesis. Wow, great job. Yeah. It's, it's funny because we already have heard people that you know, have a deeper connection uh, to God or a higher purpose seem to be able to be healthier, I guess. And mm-hmm. there's other signs of, of I guess, so- purpose already leading to health. This this just shows it as a direct correlation to um, your, your ability to actually get more movement out of yourself by having a purpose. Right. That's cool. Well, you know, it is and the interesting part of the data. When you dig down into the data, it is about movement more so than exercise. Right. So, you know, the, the people have a stronger sense of purpose. They're just out doing more things. And, you know, like you said before, you know, doing some exercise or some physical activity is important. And, you know, you don't want to be completely sedentary. So even if you're not willing to, you know, go out and run a marathon, you know, just going out and just being more active, gardening, you Hmm. know, taking walks around your neighborhood, those are things that are really important. Did, as you were looking at the 100 community members, did you see similar patterns in their overarching purpose? Were they family oriented? Were they, what, what was their kind of a a general consensus, five, six, seven things that people were citing as a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so relationships with other people is usually the the top thing that comes out. So, you know, whether that be, you know, your spouse or partner or your, you know, children, other family members or friends, you know, relationships are usually the things that come out very important. Mm. You know, we're, we're social beings. Yeah. We find our relationships to be very important. Um, other things, you know, were things about achieving or um, so for your career or your education to continue your achievement level. So those are generally the two strongest things that come out. Hmm. You know, other people have, you know, my purpose is to travel the world or something to yeah. more of the exploration. But, um, yeah, you see definitely the achievement and the relationship. Uh, sources of motivation and meaning to be the strongest ones. And um, I guess health, like, I guess you you want, what we're looking for is health. What's the purpose for me to have health? Number one would be relationships, maybe career, mm-hmm. education. What, when you talk about connection to your purpose, what, how did you look at that? What, how, how do we how do we stay connected to the purpose? seems like some mm-hmm. of us may have a great purpose, but we forget it regularly. Right. Well, that actually it brings me to my dissertation, which I just finished. So um, we think of it as this idea of salience, of meaning. So how much do you think about these things on a daily basis? And most of us really don't, ultimately. You know, we have these sense of purpose, but, you know, there's things in our life or is it just the day-to-day that demand our attention? So we don't think about these things very often. So people who think about them more on a daily basis are more active on that particular day. So even within day vari- or within a person variability is shown that, you know, thinking about these more 
on a daily basis will lead to more activity on that day. Mm, like it. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, uh, candidate, PhD candidate Stephanie Hooker. She is uh, um, working on a PhD in clinical health psychology at the University of Colorado, Denver, in Denver, Colorado, and uh, is discussing the power of fitness motivation, how purpose is tied to being motivated to exercise and actually move more in your life. We'll continue the discussion, including trying to figure out how we can keep our purpose in front of us just every day, day in, day out. Stick with us, folks. The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. See, Rocky Balboa had a reason. Adrian! Adrian! We've got a great uh, guest with us today. Stephanie Hooker joins us. She is a Ph.D. candidate in clinical health psychology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and is talking to to us today about purpose, having a purpose, uh, kind of a big life picture and purpose, and then being able to connect to it. Um, makes it so you, you're able, you're more likely to move, move around. You're more likely to exercise, but maybe more importantly, just stay active. And uh, it's pretty. It's a pretty f- fun finding, isn't it, Stephanie? I mean, it's 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 the beginning of some pretty great psychology. Yeah, I, it's a definitely a new area of research for psych, and I think we could definitely expand and figure out how to help people stay more active. What are the ways then that you would suggest to stay connected to that bigger life overarching purpose? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, first you have to figure out what that purpose is. And for some people, that's really easy. And for others, that may be a little bit harder. And so generally, we recommend some good reflection on, you know, what do you value in life? What are the things that get you up in the morning and keep you going? And once you have that good sense of what that purpose is, then, you know, we recommend scheduling things throughout your day that are connected to that sense of purpose. So, again, if, you know, if my family is the most important thing to me, then, you know, I want to make sure that I'm spending time with my kids every day or I'm doing things that are related to that sense of purpose. Hmm. And all. You can get off. You can get off chart or an off target, right? I could think my family is the most important thing to me, but I spend all day working and all night coaching a team, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm never there and I'm never mm-hmm. fulfilling what I really want. Oh, exactly. And when people are have this mismatch or disconnect with what sense of purpose, they feel off. You know, they may feel a little depressed or really just feel like their life's not going the way they want it to. And so you, most people can sense when things are not going right. Yeah. No, right. In fact, if you just look at the data that we stated earlier, that maybe as high as 95% of the people aren't getting the amount of prescribed exercise they're supposed to, and that seems high, but let's just say 90%, 80% aren't, in a way, that might mean a lot of them are off purpose. Yeah, that could definitely be one reason. You know, if you're spending a lot of time at work and it's not really fulfilling to you and, you know, you can definitely feel like your purpose is not really being achieved or you're not going towards what you really want to do in life. What about um, what are some other ways, I guess, that we can keep it top of mind, keep it in front of us? Mm hmm. So, 
I really like the idea of doing some kind of daily reflection. So this, you know, depending on when this works for you. So maybe in in the morning when you're having, you know, your morning beverage or your breakfast or in the evening when you're um, before you go to bed to really reflect on your day. Did I do things today that were meaningful to me? Did I make choices that were in line with my sense of purpose? And that daily reflection will ultimately help bring that sense of purpose to the forefront of your mind. What am I doing? Am I doing things that are in line with what I want to do in life? And I guess, too, am I, am I making time for health and exercise and movement so that I can keep doing what's important? Exactly. So noticing, like, am I taking care of myself the way I should take care of myself so that I can fully engage with that sense of purpose? Yeah. It's a funny idea that you, I mean, it's, I, where was it? Somebody was talking about heart health and I was listening and I thought, but one thing they mentioned was um, brushing your teeth and mm-hmm. oral hygiene. And I thought, what does that have to do with heart health? But it's an it's an interesting thing because it's if you're struggling getting your teeth brushed, you're probably <laughs> struggling with other problems of health. Right. It's just That's a sign. Regulation thing. Yeah. Being able to you know make sure that you're taking care of yourself on those little habits every day. Yeah. You're falling apart. What yeah. uh, what as a psychologist? What where do you see? this going in the future? I mean, it used to be we exercised, it wasn't as formal. Now we have all this, go to the gym, you know, do your, do your planks, all of these Mm -hmm. things that we all know about. But it seems like 30, 40 years ago, we weren't talking about planks, but we seemed healthier. Yeah, well, we're more sedentary now. Our technology and the way we transport around the the country and even just to work has made us so sedentary that we're not moving as much as we used to do. If you think about it, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't really have cars. You know, most people walked to places and they had active jobs. Now we sit on behind computers all day. Mm. So our lives have really changed. It's killing us. Yeah, killing us. Ultimately, I think, you know, if you're the kind of person that likes to go to the gym and you really find that enjoyable, then do that. But if you're not that person, that is not going to be a sustainable method of exercise for you. You know, I try to recommend exercise that fits in with people's daily lives. So if you, if again, if family is important to you, go for a walk with your family after dinner Yeah. or find things that are enjoyable to you so that that helps you maintain that exercise over time. It's so true. And just in our, we did it, we went and played pickleball in our backyard and I thought, why don't we do this more? (laughs) I love my family. We love tennis and pickleball and it's fun. And we just need to do this more, especially because it was so connected to everyone we love and and what we love doing. So I guess part of it is just making making it an intelligent, you know, conscientious choice to do it now. Right. And, you know, when you're playing pickleball with your family, that didn't feel like exercise, right? A lot of the times we get so down on ourselves if we don't feel like we're doing some kind of really hard exercise. But that type of activity is still going to help benefit your health. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Stephanie, we appreciate you. We wish you the best of luck as you're finishing out your Ph.D. program. Well, thank you. Have you defended your dissertation? I have. Okay. 
Isn't that a fun experience? Oh, yes. It's all done, which I'm now I'm excited to get it out and get it published. What I usually find in those dissertation defenses, you're the one in the room that knows more about that subject than anyone anyway, because mm-hmm. you did all the work. Right. And well, that's what you want it to be like. That's right. <laughs> and then they pretend like they know. But we all know, mm-hmm. Stephanie, you know more than they do. Good stuff. <laughs> yes. Keep up the great thank work you. and thank you so much for the insight. Yeah, thank you. You bet. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. We're wrapping it up. Lots of fun still ahead, though. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. little tunage for our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. With it. How you guys doing? We good, I just want man. to get something out in the, you know, in the open. Okay, let's do it. BYU has a 26-year-old quarterback. Wow. Yep. And it became a national topic to a degree last night. Really? Again. Oh, yeah, because don't you know that going on a mission is uh, makes you super athletically strong and is a huge <laughs> advantage compared to all other teams? So all you do is pump iron. Hold on. Is that, what, is that what they're saying is that because he's older, he has an advantage? I believe, well, I believe it was BYU is they hustle. They hustle teams in college football because they get to, they're older. Holy cow. <laughs> but, Which, but our hips you know, are... If you know it goes into a mission, that's the most ridiculous yeah. thing yeah. you've ever heard. No. So when right. people say that, they don't know what goes into it. They don't understand that most of the time those missionaries are on their knees, so they come home with really bad knees. Yeah, exactly. And, and their hips are brittle. It's a hour work week, volunteer, many times in a foreign country uh, that you didn't pick, with a per- living with a person you didn't pick. Right. You might not even like. So let me ask you this, you two little pros. Is so is there is it an advantage to go into the NFL draft as a twenty six year old? Oh, complete disadvantage. Exactly. Are you kidding me? In so baseball, how is it the same? Yeah, B- BYU yeah. struggles uh in baseball especially. And even basketball. Like like Kyle Collinsworth is getting some looks because he's talented with the Dallas Mavericks. But he's older. They can get a guy that's like 19 right. with a similar skill set. Why would they have the baggage of five years on those bones or whatever? You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's, it's not an advantage at all. But that, that, won't be the, that won't be the primary topic today. We're not going to not You're not going there. Desmond Howard, who's the one that said that. We like Desmond. I like Desmond. Did, he's, he's, uh, he's, yeah. he's completely wrong on this idea in my opinion. Yeah. But They're hustling. Like <laughs> yeah. They won so many national titles yeah. and – uh yeah, they've won that's ten a, plus games every year. It. Nope. Right. Nope. That's it. That makes sense. Hey, um, I don't know if you guys heard that song earlier, but the song was the banana split song. Oh, that you was know? the banana split song? Uh-huh, by the banana splits. I that had never sense. heard that before. Now here's why. Today is banana split day. That sounds delicious right every now. Every day honestly. is <sighs> banana split day. You know what? Just go to the creamery, let's just get a banana split. Let's just talk sports, you guys. Because think about think about this. Can't a banana split, in a way, be like a breakfast item? Oh, for sure. Have oh, you ever had a, a breakfast split? Yeah, dairy, are... dairy, dairy with the ice and, cream and fruit. And dairy and fruit. <laughs> Come on. You're like, I'm going to give you something that's delicious. It's but you can't have fruit. any chocolate on it or caramel. Says who? Because it's breakfast. Well, okay. Then <gasps> how, come, how come kids can eat Cocoa Puffs and Fruit Loops Nailed and it. Cinnamon Point Toast Spencer. Crunch? <laughs> Point Spencer. Well, because those parents are killing their children. <laughs> 
That's how come. Hey, here's another one. I'm going to give you a test. We will play a song. You have to guess this day. What? What else? What's another day we're celebrating today? You don't have to be rich to be my girl. You don't have to be cool. You can hear Jeremy in the back. <laughs> <laughs> is it Prince Day or something? It's not. It's not Prince Day. Here it is. Kiss. Oh. It's Kiss and Makeup Day. Yesterday was Waffle Day too, right? I didn't. We didn't catch Waffle Day. Mm. Blasted. Yeah. I love me a good step waffle. up your game, man. Totally, man. Totally. <laughs> so you guys, today's the day that you can you can kiss and make up. So if whoa, did somebody just did you just lose somebody there? Nope. Sounds like somebody just took a bullet. No. Okay. Nope, we're good. We're good. You might want to count your people because I think you (laughs) lost one. Talk about uh, Taysom Hill, 1 in 16, named for the Heisman. Yeah, but he's 26, and he's clearly advantaged (laughs) over all the college football players. So many... You realize, like, the the award winners and, like, the greatest athletes in BYU history... In the most of the time, didn't go on missions, right? Like, right. Get, like name me the youngins. Na- name me some of the greatest ever. Yeah, probably uh, didn't McMahon. Go on no, nope. Uh, Steve Young, nope. No, Detmer, nope. Detmer, no. Jimmer, no. Jimmer, no. <gasps> Ziggy, no. Oh, so I guess age Taylor doesn't Sanders, no. have like, advantage. No, oh, it's a disadvantage. Hmm. Whatever. Spiritually, and an, an amazing advantage. Yeah, incredible. The, does in life life experience. Athletically. No. Not an advantage. It would seem like it would be one, right? So I, I'm with Ainge. Nope. No. Ryan Millar, volleyball, three times. Holy cow. Nope. You guys might be onto something here. There, trust me. Dennis Pitta, RM, return missionary. That's what that means. But right? he's there falling apart right now. But Dennis Pitta is not one of the best. Like, I'm t- Johnny Miller. Nope. No. You know, hey, what I mean? you know what I mean? I was I'm not saying going on a mission doesn't mean you won't be a great pro. Right. But it is a disadvantage. Yeah. T- to tell your me this. Athletic career as you brought up dennis pitta he got in a little fisticuffs in a practice right well it was his yeah i mean that's he's not he's not the punching kind we know dennis no. you know he's, he's, soft, he's just a big bear hug wrestle he was just yeah. wrestling with the guy yeah he's he's in a little bit of a predicament with an injury mm. yeah. hey uh what else is on your show today you're still doing your show right oh we are doing the show it's oh. loaded it's a three guests a day baby oh baby oh <sighs> Those are so big. on top of three guests, mm-hmm. and they are Yogi Roth of Pac-12. the Pac-12 Network. We'll discuss the first three games BYU has against the Pac-12 wow. South, okay. namely Arizona, Utah. Gennaro Guilford, cornerbacks coach for BYU, mm-hmm. and Amy Boswell, who is an All-American volleyball player for the Cougars. Sweet. She's she returned missionary. Four. She's six foot four. Holy Not cow! Not a return missionary. Yeah, so she'll go pro. <laughs> That's it. Darn Alexa it. Alexa Gray go on a mission? Nope. Jen Hampson? Well. Isn't that wild? We're, we're starting to see that, though, with BYU. Like, there's a women's soccer starter who is uh, uh, who just returned from a mission. A couple, actually. Yeah. How about that? That's but cool. it makes them older. That you can't get around. But it's a huge advantage. Let's get real. <laughs> we all get swole on our missions. <laughs> Done swole up. <laughs> what, uh, what else are you talking What are the topics you're hitting today? Mm, are you going to well, do the Heisman gonna, thing? We're going to tackle... We're going to tackle Desmond Howard. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> he was hard to tackle in the open field. Yeah, he was. Do and it. And we're discussing the greatest duo of quarterbacks going into any given season in BYU history. I feel pretty strongly about 
this year's group against the field. We'll we'll break it down. Interesting. Great show, you guys. Mm. Again, bring it. Hey, oh, and we're if not- you're not ready to go, don't show up because we we are. It's it's on. The it's ca- on. The countdown today. to actual BYU football is in single digits, too, Matt. And we will tell you <sighs> the exact average age of the BYU football team. Mm-hmm. Okay. Holy cow! And is it you, 24? thirty-two point we'll seven. We'll tell you. Will you also tell us who's married? How, what percentage are married? Because that gives a huge advantage. That too. I don't know. That we'll have to get that from uh, the stats and info department. You know, specific what? number. Just make it up on our okay. show. We make forty-one percent. Like we always do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, great show and happy uh, kiss and makeup day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank and you. also happy National Banana Split Day. Mm. Oh man, I want one of those for breakfast. Knock them dead, kill them today, guys. Okay, you'll be great. Oh, they're good. They did it. They boy, they were on fuego. Don't mess with how old BYU players are. And pretend like that's an advantage. BYU doesn't have a lot of recruiting advantages anywhere, except maybe maybe recruiting Mormons to BYU. Maybe, but even other schools can do that now, right? So uh, we've got a we've got a we've got a few more things we've got to talk about. For example, they just mentioned six foot four volleyball player. That's a tall female, 6'4". It's kind of tall. It's really tall. Uh, A a Massachusetts man was accused of standing through the sunroof while driving. Police in Massachusetts say the tall man was pulled over after driving while standing up with his upper body sticking out of the sunroof. And they shared a photo of officers handcuffing the 6'7"-inch tall man who uh, was seen standing through the sunroof. I don't think they had a big enough reason to pull him over, honestly. I mean, he's so tall, he may have been sitting down and he was still poking out of the sunroof. Yeah, he's just poking out. So we've, we just happened to have caught some audio, I guess at the scene, Jeff, is that where it was? Yeah, and there were some people nearby that were taunting him, too. So. Really? So here's, here's the scene. Do you find something comical about my appearance when I'm driving my automobile? Yeah. Talks like a tall guy. Everyone needs to drive a vehicle, even the very tall. This was the largest auto that I could afford. Should I, therefore, be made the subject of fun? I guess so. Would you like it if I laughed at your misfortune? Huh? Maybe we should find out. Whoa. No march. Wow. Hey, everybody. He's humiliating this this boy. boy You know, maybe this is why they arrested him. him. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that poor kid. You laugh. (laughs) You laugh at one tall guy. Oh, that was. It just goes to show, though, that you it never pays to be a bully. No, it doesn't. That sounded like Nelson from The Simpsons. Is that his name? Nelson? Oh. I don't know if that was him, but it, hmm. he's got one of those laughs you just can't mistake. As you know, we always like to wrap the show up with a hero story. And uh, the heroes of this story will be a lot of fans at an air show. Onlookers at the Hearn Bay Air Show in England earlier this week were about to see a rare demonstration 
when a pilot's single-engine open-cockpit aircraft lost power and he was forced to make an emergency landing on the water in front of thousands of spectators. But then things went wrong. After gently touching down, the aircraft immediately flipped over, leaving the pilot trapped underwater. Roughly a dozen helpful beachgoers rushed to the down plane and, uh, and had to help it be righted up and pulled ashore in just a few moments. Fortunately for the pilot, though, the crowd's decisive action prevented drowning, and he walked away with only a broken nose. According to the BBC, the pilot has flown more than 120 displays in the last 10 years and made a distress radio call indicating that there were engine problems. The pilot was a member of the turbulent display team who later confirmed that he was safe and only sustained minor injuries, by the way, because of the fans of the air show. So the heroes of the day, bunch of fans. Isn't that amazing? Went and saved a man's life. Who would run out into a river, a stream, and... Uh, Right up, uh, upright, a, a, a crashed plane. That's scary stuff. And boy, blessed man, only broke his nose. Folks, that's the rule right there. It only takes a few to change a person's life. And uh, you don't have to go into dangerous situations like that. You could just simply go home and be a great mom, be a great dad, great grandparent. Be just awesome with the relationships you've got. That's why we do the show, to give you some motivation, some hope. And uh, also to help you just see that... Life's not so bad. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. Until then, make it a great day today, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Take care.